Shabbat Shalom, Hebrews and Shebrews. You guys know my name, Noel Joshua Hadley. But uh, you may not know the name of the person who is giving a presentation tonight. His name is Jason Beck. And he was on, I can't believe the time that has gone by. He was on for a very good two-part presentation last spring. Uh, it was probably like last March or April. And he gave a, a long talk on the, the feminine Ruach HaKadosh and how that uh, plays out with the Greek LXX specifically, a great deal. And so he's come back now. This is his first article that he has uh, technically published with the Unexpected Cosmology. Jason, Shabbat Shalom, welcome. Uh, tell us about Shabbat yourself. Shalom. Tell us about yourself and then open us with prayer and take it away. Yeah. Yeah, I guess uh, one of my hearts has always been to uh, understand um, Yahweh uh, as best as best that I can, and in doing so, to understand the the Bible as best that I can. Um, and so, years ago, I devoted myself to uh, a study of first of the Bible, uh, but then of the manuscripts behind the Bible, uh, and then the, the dates of each of the manuscripts, um, and then through a comparison uh, of that topic, to try to find the most accurate. Uh, translation and verses of the Bible um, possible for me. That's always been kind of my heart. Um, I want to say a quick prayer, if that's all right. Uh, can we just come before you, uh, Yahweh? Please take us away. What's that? Oh, I'm sorry. I said please take us away. I didn't mean to inter interrupt. I'm sorry. Oh, oh, you're fine. So Yahweh, we just uh, want to come before you tonight. Um, we ask for uh, your presence to be upon us, and I ask for uh, the spirit of wisdom and knowledge and revelation to be with us as we uh, go through this teaching. Um, and I ask uh, Ruach HaKodesh that you would highlight to anyone if I misspeak or say anything incorrectly. I pray that you would highlight this to the people. And also, if I say anything correctly or say truth, um, that you would highlight this to the people as well. Um, I just uh, I just pray for truth to uh, prevail uh, through this, and I pray that you would help me to communicate uh, clearly on these topics. Just ask in Yeshua's name. All right. Um, I did want to open up um, just with a quick thing. I had a pretty neat conversation. Um, with somebody on this Discord group uh, about a week or so ago. And uh, some of the things that I'm going to say tonight um, do go against the uh, doctrine of the Trinity. Um, and I know a lot of you guys already don't believe in that doctrine, and some, some may. Um, but what this guy told me was really interesting. He said it was the conversation we had was one of the first times that he slowed down um, to listen to it because every time he's heard someone um, talking against the doctrine of the Trinity, they try to minimize Yeshua, and some people even stop talking about Yeshua altogether. And so I just want to start off this presentation saying that I honor and worship Yeshua, and he is the only way to the Father, to Yahweh. Um, and one of my life goals is to 
give him honor because um, in in doing so in giving Yeshua honor it gives honor to Yahweh um, and so when I say things tonight um, that would discount the doctrine of the Trinity um, know that I I love uh, Yeshua this is not uh, I'm not trying to speak against him All right. Uh, at the start of the document, can you can you guys hear me fine? You're coming in loud and clear. Okay. All right. I'm going to start at the top of the document, and I'll probably start off reading the first section, then we'll kind of see where it goes from there. All right. Uh, the Bible is the most important document ever written. Uh, many of us desire to live our lives by this book. The question is, how important is it to have an accurate translation of the book we are living our lives by? I believe it's extremely important. The next question is, do you have an accurate translation of the Bible? Possibly. It depends on what version you read. Some translations are much more accurate than others. There's one more layer hidden underneath this topic, that being the source Hebrew and Greek manuscripts each Bible is translated from. Some translations utilize biblical manuscripts approximately 700 years older than others. Is it dangerous to read, study, or live your life by a translation that is 700 years newer? It depends on how precise you would like it to be. In that lengthy time span, the Bible was copied by countless scribes and numerous errors showed up in the text, many of them being extremely minor things, such as the misspelling of names and numbers of horsemen and warriors in battles. Similar to the game of telephone, it is natural for some flaws to show up in the 700 years of copy and manuscripts by hand. As believers in Christ, we believe that the Holy Spirit spoke through the biblical writers in the original manuscripts, but that doesn't necessarily mean that the hundreds of thousands of hand scribes throughout the next 1,000 years uh, were each under the anointing of the Spirit to the point that each one of them made zero mistakes. In fact, when we compare the late manuscript copies to our oldest manuscripts, we can prove beyond a shadow of a doubt at least some mistakes. Through a deep study of the oldest manuscripts, there is one bigger problem that arises. There were times that the Hebrew and Greek manuscripts were modified on purpose with motives. And this is the part that years ago really captivated me because I would have never dreamed that people would change these things on, on purpose with a, a goal in mind. Uh, don't worry, the Bibles we hold in our hands are extremely accurate, probably 98 to 99% of the time. And in all the changes made, I have not found any that affect salvation. You're probably asking a few questions now, like if the per purposeful changes don't affect salvation, why do they matter? And what would cause someone to intentionally modify the Hebrew and Greek manuscripts? Almost every significant change to our Bibles centers around Jesus Christ. I prefer to use his Hebrew name Yeshua and will do so from here on out. The early church councils, such as the 325 Council of Nicaea, centered on the details of who Yeshua is. Is he the Father? Is he the Son? Is he both? Are they equal in authority? Are they the same age? Did the Father create the Son? 
If the Bible so clearly stated the current Trinitarian doctrines in its, in its text, men with motives would not have been so tempted to change some of our biblical manuscripts. The arguments of that day in 325 got so heated that the church was willing to change the manuscripts in, in order to forever be the victors of this debate. Priests were literally being expelled from the church and documents were set on fire over this argument. There were also changes made to the Old Testament, man, Old Testament manuscripts by Orthodox Jews in an attempt to delete the fact that Yeshua is indeed the Messiah. To the Orthodox Jews, it is an offensive thing to declare Yeshua as the long-awaited Messiah. The oldest intact Hebrew text known to man is from 1000 AD, or 1008 AD. Does that make any sense to you? There's no good reason that we don't have any older manuscripts unless they were destroyed on purpose. We have many intact writings from the 200s and 300s, so why not the Bible? The Dead Sea Scrolls are actually from the 1st to the 3rd century BC uh, and are very fragmentary. Um, but from what is legible, they don't read the same as the 1008 manuscript. Did you know that the Orthodox Jews tried to suppress the Messiah to the degree that they actually modified their Hoptara readings? Isaiah 52 to 53 used to be read in the Jewish synagogues but it eventually became too problematic to explain away because there was uh, so much uh, prophetically of the Messiah to come in there. Do you know the solution the Orthodox Jews used to repair this problem? They changed their Hoptara readings. Now they re read halfway through Isaiah 52, and the next week they pick back up in Isaiah 54. There were also some changes made to the text in regard to the Holy Spirit, whose Hebrew name is Ruach HaKodesh. But that is another story for another day. The good news is uh, that in all of this, um, with very specific Bible translations, using very specific manuscripts, almost all of the modified passages return to their original form. Through reading these, we can get a better picture of who Yeshua is. Do you want to know more about his identity? Or would you rather believe what the modified texts declare about him? The answer to those questions will reveal to you if you should continue listening or not. So I just stated that almost every alteration made to our text centers upon who Yeshua is. Some of the changes attempt to remove him as the Messiah. Many other changes center around the doctrine of the Trinity. In my belief, the Trinitarian doctrine was added into our Bibles by man and was not in the original manuscripts. Don't worry, I do believe in Yeshua as my personal Savior. I just don't believe he is the same being as Yahweh. I believe that the Father, the Spirit, and the Son are one in unity, just like the church is one, and just like a husband and wife are one. We know that even though we are called one with every other believer, that it doesn't literally make us the same being. Hopefully that will suffice for now on that subject, because I need to get back to the matter at hand, the modified text. I have written some books on these subjects if you would like to look into them farther. Let's take a look now at the Hebrew and Greek manuscripts behind, behind our Bible translations, as this is where the greater majority of the changes lie. Take a close look at the chart below. Do you notice the large age gap between these manuscripts? 
While almost every mainstream Bible today uses the 1008 AD Hebrew text for the Old Testament, there are several translations out there that utilize the 350 AD Greek Old Testament, which corrects the majority of the changes we are going to look at. For the New Testament, the mainstream Bibles fare much better, as most of them have the 350 AD Greek text as their source. The main rule breakers for the New Testament are the King James and New King James, which use a 1180 Greek text containing numerous known corruptions. All right, do you guys see that uh, chart up there now? Am I still coming through okay, Noel? You're coming through great. I would, uh, if I could just jump in here real quick, is yeah. um, one thing that uh, Jason said in here that, and I fully agree that it's not a salvation issue, and we're talking about the Trinity, though from a salvation uh, perspective, because there's actually two things that Jason is going to be talking about tonight. One is from the Trinity. It's basically uh, taking the the divine being of Yahusha, uh, the son of the Most High, and basically changing who he is, his image, right? From two ends, it's kind of like a tug of war. Right. So on one end, you've got the Jews trying to do away with him in the Old Testament, in the Masoretic, and then you've got the, the Trinitarians trying to superimpose this into the New Testament. And so from a, from a, a perspective, uh, it, it very well could be a salvation issue um, if we're actually... Uh, not weird, but for the people who are trying to rip him out of the Old Testament, that's pretty bad stuff. Uh, just want to throw in my own uh, my own um, two cents there. So uh, keep going, but we can see the chart. Yeah. yeah, and that's a good point. the The ones that are trying to remove him as the Messiah, uh, that is a good point. That that would be a salvation issue. But as far as the Trinity, um, I don't believe that that's a uh, salvation issue. And in fact, I've actually had people um, praying for my salvation because I don't believe in the doctrine of the Trinity. Um, but uh, but I answer to uh, the Father and not to man. So, um, but yeah, in this chart, um, basically, I wanted to to show, and these are kind of using rough averages on the text. Um, the oldest text we have, the, the Vaticanus, is from 325. The Sinaiticus is from around 350 and they're kind of general numbers and they weigh the oldest texts um, heavily when they do um, you know the the manuscript uh, history like the Nestle Allen's manuscript and the United Bible Society's USB uh, text um, but the interesting thing here um, when I was trying to find the oldest Bible translations you can see that Almost every New Testament, and I just put some of the more common ones in there. I didn't put every Bible translation because that'd be impossible. But most of our Bibles actually use the oldest text. And the Septuagint really um, in Christianity is not used very often, but it uses the exact same text that we're using uh, for our New Testaments. And then you can see in that chart there that um, the 1008 Hebrew text is used by almost every single Bible. And then kind of off on its lonesome there, you have the uh, King James, New King James is 
really one of the only ones that uses the 1180 uh, Greek text, which has uh, many known corruptions in that uh, New Testament uh, Greek text. The Amplified is a spinoff, um, and that does use that text as well. And there's a few others, but the only real mainstream ones that you'd hear about would be the King James, New King James. Um, yeah, it looks like you guys have the second chart up there, which is which is fine. That's on the screen there right now. Um, I just wanted to simplify it with this uh, second chart as far as if you wanted to get um, a lot of people ask me if I want to get the most accurate translation of the Bible, what should I get? Um, and so what I personally uh, have um, if you look on the left side, the 350, 350 AD text, um, I have a Breton Septuagint. Um, I also have an NETS Septuagint, which is fine as well. Um, and and in, in the past, I liked the NETS over the Bretons, but I've been starting to lean more towards the Bretons in the last few months for uh, several reasons. Um, and then the NESB New Testament, uh, especially the 1995 edition is what I use for the the New Testament. Um, but if you look in there, you know, you, you go out and tell someone to buy a 95 NESB for the Old Testament, it's not using the oldest text now. So it's 1008 AD. And then when you move over to the King James, New King James, um, you have both of the texts are from 1000 AD and later in. You know, if there's anyone listening that is a, a King James only or New King James, I'm not trying to um, make fun or mock a translation. I'm just looking purely at the age of the manuscripts and then trying to prove uh, what is the most accurate version of the Bible. That's always been uh, my goal, I guess. All right. Okay, if you guys want to, if somebody wants to bring up that last chart there of who is Yeshua. I want to um, look at this last chart because this kind of, this really, yeah, thanks Rob. This really explains uh, where this whole article is going. Um, you have everyone, the whole goal in all of these modifications is to change who Yeshua is. Um, and I just want the truth in all these things. I, I don't care what it sounds like. I just want the absolute truth. So you have a group on the left side of here saying Yeshua is not the Messiah, which is the, the Orthodox Jews. Um, and the Masoretes um, had translated the Old Testament and, and rewritten it year after year. Um, the thing that concerned me the most is that why do we have no Old Testament older than 1008? Um, it had to be purposely destroyed and then rewritten countless times. Um, and so I'm going to go over tonight instances where the Masoretes um, removed um, prophecies of Yeshua 
as the Messiah, um, some prophecies that would maybe make the, the Orthodox Jews uh, look bad, um, or some passages that discount uh, the Christian's New Testament. The middle section there um, on who is Yeshua uh, is the Messiah, the literal son of the Father, created by the Father. Um, and I believe that the oldest, the 350 AD, um, Old Testament and New Testament in the Greek both support this. And that's what I'm going to be arguing tonight. And then on the right-hand side, um, I have the Messiah, the same being as the Father, not created by him, meaning that he has always existed. Um, and this was from the Trinitarians. They altered not just the Greek, um, but there's, there's, there's a multiple, uh, there's many things going on here. Uh, the Hebrew text, they changed in a few places to help the Trinitarian doctrine. In the Greek text, they changed in a few places to help the Trinitarian doctrine. Um, and you have to remember that Constantine um, legalized Christianity in 325 as a Roman emperor. And Jerome um, was in that same system, and he wrote the Bible into Latin, the Latin Vulgate, and that became the most popular Bible translation for 1,100 years. And that was rewritten uh, many times. Um, so yeah, like I say, that kind of sums up, you know, the different topics we're going to be uh, talking about tonight. So we're going to start off with uh, the Masoretes and the changes they made uh, to discount Yeshua as the Messiah. The Masoretes were Orthodox Jewish scholars. Um, they were Torah scribes. They worked between the 500s and the 900s AD. Um, they were mainly from the Middle East, Tiber Tiberias, Jerusalem, and Iraq. These Orthodox Jewish scholars did not believe that Yeshua was the Messiah. And from a study of history, it seems they were willing to alter the Hebrew text in an effort to conceal this. Um, they also had a disdain for Christians and altered some of the Hebrew Old Testament prophecies so that they no longer matched our Bibles we have today. All right, so section one here um, is the Masoretes' attempt to erase Yeshua as the Messiah. And basically on each one of these things, I'm going to have five examples of each topic I'm talking about. Um, I do have a lot more. I've been researching and, and documenting all of these, but I just want to have a, a quick five of each one. Um, so if you're there, Noel, I'll probably have you read uh, some of these verses for me to give me a little bit of a, a breather. If you're going to read uh, Hebrews 1 there. Absolutely. Hebrews 1, 6. And when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, and let all the angels of God worship him. And of the angels, he says, who makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire? And that comes from the NASB 1995. Yes. And one of the things I don't know if you guys realize or not, but this is quoted in the book, book of Hebrews. And this exists nowhere in our Bibles today, unless you have a Septuagint Old Testament. You will not find this in, in NIV and ESV and NASB. 
King James, you won't find it in any of those Bibles. Um, so now, Noah, I'll have you maybe read um, both versions of Deuteronomy 32 there. Absolutely. So the first is going to come from the NASB 1995. This is Deuteronomy 32, verse 41. If I sharpen my flashing sword and my hand takes hold on justice, I will render vengeance on my adversaries and I will repay those who hate me. And this is, of course, going through uh, 42 and 43. I will make my arrows drunk with blood and my sword will devour flesh with the blood of the slain and the captives from the long haired leaders of the enemy. Rejoice, O nations, with his people, for he will avenge the blood of his servants and will render vengeance on his adversaries and will atone for his hand and his people. And then reading from the uh, Brenton Septuagint, same passage, Deuteronomy 32, 41 through 43. For I will sharpen my sword like lightning, and my hand shall take hold of judgment, and I will render judgment to my enemies, and will recompense them that hate me. I will make my weapons drunk with blood, and my sword shall devour flesh, with the blood of the wounded, and from the captivity of the heads of enemies that rule over them. Rejoice, ye heavens, with him, and let all the angels of God, or Elohim, worship him. Rejoice, ye Gentiles, with his people, and let all the sons of Elohim strengthen themselves in him, for he will avenge the blood of his sons, and he will render vengeance and recompense justice to his enemies, and will reward them that hate him. And Yahuwah shall purge the land of his people. Did you notice, Noel, how much difference there is in the length of verse 43 there? Yeah, there's a lot that's, uh, it's, I don't know, it's a few times longer in the Septuagint than what we see in the NASB. Yeah, and not only does it say in there, let all the angels of God worship him, um, you know, just in the next line following, it says, let all the sons of God strengthen themselves in him. Um, and so, I mean, as far as the, the Masoretes are concerned, they would be, uh, they would frown upon um, Yeshua being worshipped, correct? Yeah, absolutely. And so um, it, it seems to be in this case that they decided to um, remove this passage from the Hebrew um, in order to um, diminish uh, Yeshua. Interesting thing. What's that? Jason, Jason, can I just throw in a, com a comment here? Is that yeah. I have, this is actually, this is really profound, this passage. Um, and I have never, before reading your article, I've never read this before. Now, uh, over the last few years, since I have come into uh, Torah observance, um, I have encountered many within the movement that you're, you're kind of correct in the idea when people... Uh, throughout the Trinity, which of course I did as well years ago, uh, they they start getting into this camp of this 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 thought process of worshiping Yahusha, uh, the the Son of the Most High, is actually idolatry, and you will see that um, many much of the anti messianic movement out there it kind of it stems from that thought, and and so seeing that it was actually when I read this and like wow. This is actually in the original Torah, uh, this idea of, of worshiping him, the, who we know is the son of the Most High. That's really powerful. So that was, that was great stuff. 
Yeah, thank you. Um, and if you think about it, um, uh, you know, as for anyone listening that has children of their own, uh, we cherish our children and want the best for them and, and honor them. And I believe that's the same way Yahweh feels about Yeshua. And so when people try to change the text um, to delete uh, his son, to try to change who his son is, um, that is a fearful thing. And um, I, I just feel like we need to uncover the truth and, and find out what the original manuscript said about him. Um, and an interesting side note on this passage here in Deuteronomy 32, um, in the Dead Sea Scrolls, now a lot of people ask me questions about the scrolls um, as far as isn't that the oldest Hebrew manuscript we have um, that's much older obviously than the 1008 uh, Hebrew text we use today, 100%. I mean, uh, first to third century BC, most of the scrolls were written. You know, they found over a thousand documents. Biggest thing is they, they're they very broken up, very fragmentary. And so when you're reading the scrolls, you'll read two words, and then there'll be 15 words missing, and you'll read three more words. Now, what people have done is they will say, we are using, uh, and I one of them I was just reading the other day, used the World English Translation. And so what they say is they're filling in the World English translation for all the words that are unreadable in the scrolls. So I'm just throwing that out there that uh, that is an old manuscript that we have, but there you can't read much of it. Um, but this section in Deuteronomy 32 is legible in the scrolls uh, in Dead Sea Scroll 4Q44. Um, it does say, and not all the angels of God worship him. And so, and that is in the Hebrew. So in the Dead Sea Scrolls in Hebrew, it does it does have this verse back in there, which that was uh, fascinating to me that, that that was the case. So unless you have any other comments on that one, Noel. Um, yeah, I just wanted next. to, okay, um, am I reading Hebrews 10.5? Yeah, yeah, unless you had anything else on that other section there. Feel free to jump in wherever. Okay, here we go. Hebrews 10.5, and this comes from the NASB 1995. Therefore, when he comes into the world, he says, Sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come in the scroll of the book, it is written of me to do your will, O Elohim. And that section there where it says sacrifice and offering um, you have not desired, that is in all of our Bibles, but where it says a body you have prepared for me. Um, I don't know if you guys realize that, but that is not in our Old Testaments today. Again, unless you have a uh, Septuagint translation. Um, so I'll have you read those next to Noel. And uh, one quick caveat before we get too far. You'll notice the numbers on the Psalms are different. The Septuagint um, has a little bit different numbering system. So you'll notice that the chapter numbers are one off on a lot of these in instances. 
And everyone listening, um, I want really take in what is being uh, offered to you guys right now, because every few, every two to four years or so, when we have these huge swells, these tides that come up of anti-messianic movements and a lot of people fall away, these same conversations come up. Like what we just read in Hebrews 10, 5, that is so profound, where it says, but a body you have prepared for me that has been ripped out, right? Uh, and then we're yeah. going to, and we're going to see where that comes from in a second. But I, I was taking phone calls with people who were, who were saying the same thing that, that he, there couldn't, Yahushua couldn't have been a sacrifice. There's no possible way. And well, we're going to see that unfortunately they fell into error because they were lied to. Uh, we have all been lied to about this and uh, from the sin of the scribes. So here we go. Uh, Psalms 46. You have not desired sacrifice and meal offering. You have opened my ears. You have not required burnt offering and sin offering. Then I said, behold, I come in the scroll of the book. It is written to me. I delight to do your will. O my Elohim, your Torah is within my heart. That's from the NASB 1995. And then uh, this is what it says, Psalms 39.6 from the Brenton Septuagint. Sacrifice and offering you wouldest not, but a body hast thou prepared me. So there it is. Whole burnt offering and sacrifice for sin thou did not require. Then I said, Behold, I come. In the volume of the book it is written concerning me, I desire to do thy will, O my Elohim, and thy Torah in the midst of mine heart. Um, or, of course, the, the Septuagint would say thy law, uh, and that's from the Septuagint. And I want you guys to think about what would cause someone to remove a passage like this. Um, you know, obviously, um, many of the Jewish people did not believe Yeshua was the Messiah, and they were the ones crying out, crucify him, crucify him. Um, and so... There would have been quite a buzz uh, for many, many years among their communities of people coming in saying, you know, among the Orthodox Jews saying, are you sure he's not the Messiah? You know, we know of this Joseph and Mary um, and that there there was a son uh, born by him and obviously through Yahweh and Ruach HaKodesh, but that's a side story. Um, but, you know, they would be saying that there was this man that walked the earth in a physical body and he died on a cross and so what better way to remove some of these things um, than to change the scriptures so instead of this quote which hebrew says this quote's referring to yeshua um uh, you know in the original text saying a body you have prepared for me if the masoretes could delete this that there was a body prepared to live on this earth for the Messiah um, to die for our sins. Um, they would be one step closer to removing him or discounting him. Um, so it, a lot of these things seem to be with that goal in mind with, you know, they, they don't, they, they basically just want to discount Yeshua. So... Do you have anything else to add to that, Noel? I don't know. All right, let's go on to number three then, if you want to read uh, John 20. 
2025. This comes once again from the NASB 1995. So the other disciples were saying to him, we have seen Adonai. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands and the imprints of the nails and put my finger into the place of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. And I don't know if you guys know, but when when Yeshua uh, died on the cross um, and he had his, his hands and feet pierced, he was fulfilling a, an Old Testament prophecy. Um, now, this prophecy was removed from our Bibles, kind of. And I want to explain this. This is such a known corruption. It is not there in the Hebrew. But what, what the Bibles are doing, and, and it, really I'm okay with it because they're, they're bringing the true text back in. But so all of our Old Testaments today outside of the Septuagint are translated from the 1008 Hebrew. And they are putting this verse back in there um, to, again, uh, to again show this, um, which is really cool. Um, I'll have you read first, Noel, the uh, Psalms 22. Um, this one here is the only one, a very rare translation that translate, translates this from the Hebrew uh, text. So I'll have you read that one there. Would you like me to read both or just the first? Um, yeah, just the oh, first one. Oh. Okay, here we go. Psalms 22:16, and this comes from the JPS Tanakh 1917. For dogs have encompassed me, a company of evildoers have enclosed me. Like a lion, they are at my hands and my feet. I may count all my bones. They took, they, excuse me, they look and gloat over me. They part my garments among them, and for my vesture do they cast lots. Again, from the JPS Tanakh, 1917. All right, and like I say, this, this one here is a direct translation from the Hebrew, word for word. Um, and you can't really see anything in there that would look like, um, you know, his hands and his feet being uh, pierced. Um, I'll have you read uh, next, I guess, the... Uh, Psalms 22, along with the footnote um, below it there. Right, this comes from, again, same verse, Psalms 22:16. This is from the NETS, and it says, Yes, wild dogs surround me. A gang of evil men crowd around me. Like a lion, they pin my hands and feet. And I'll just read that one more time so you guys hear that emphasize. Like a lion, they pin my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. My enemies are gloating over me in triumph. They are dividing up my clothes among themselves. They are rolling dice for my garments. And then the NETS footnote says, The Masoretic text reads, Like a lion, my hands and my feet. The reading is difficult and the ancient versions vary. So the textual difficulty is probably very early. Yeah, and then that one there, um, uh, pin my hands and feet is very close. So um, they have the second part. Um, they're taking off of the Septuagint. Um, but the like a lion part, 
um, they're following the uh, the Hebrew text for that part. Um, and I I should clarify one thing real quick here. Um, that one says NETS on there for the translation. Um, that is the NETS from the Hebrew text. Um, I should have wrote that on there. There's two NETS Old Testaments, a Hebrew one and a Greek Septuagint one, just to clarify that part. Um, but yeah, so, and I'll have you read now the next one, the ESV, along with the ESV footnote. All right, again, from Psalms 22:16 ESV. For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me, and here's the bold, they have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. And then the footnote says, some Hebrew manuscripts, Septuagint, Vulgate, uh, Syriac, most Hebrew manuscripts, like a lion, they are at my hands and feet. And so when you read these, they're actually, these translations are skipping over the Hebrew for these sections because they know it's corrupt and are translating the Greek Septuagint instead. Um, and so, again, that leads me to a study of the Greek Old Testament. And so I've been trying to compare uh, that with the Hebrew and, and find out uh, nobody has a complete list of variations because it's not a real popular topic to study. Uh, the mainstream Christianity just supports the Hebrew. So, um, And then I'll have you read that last one there uh, from the Bretons. Once again, this is still Psalms 2116 from the Brenton Septuagint, and it, it reads, For many dogs have compassed me. The assembly of the wicked doers has beset me round. They pierced my hands and my feet. So there's the bold. They pierced my hands and my feet. They counted all my bones, and they observed and looked upon me. They parted my garments among themselves and cast lots upon my raiments. Yes, and so... Of all these ones we just read, the only one that actually translated from the manuscripts that they were utilizing um, for their source text was the Brentons, because that's how the uh, Septuagint reads. Uh, the Masoretic does not. Um, now, again, we go back to the Masoretic scribes. Um, I'm sure they were told stories of Yeshua, his hands and feet being pierced and hang hanging on a cross. And he fulfilled so many prophecies that it began to be really hard for them to deny him. So again, um, I believe they modified uh, the Hebrew text um, to take out this prophecy of him having his hands and feet pierced on the cross, um, which again is a, a shameful thing. Uh, I, I can't imagine anyone willingly corrupting the biblical text. So unless you have a comment on that one, we'll go to number four. Well, um, I, do, I will just quickly point out that it is interesting that every single version we've read from all includes the fact that uh, none of his bones were broken. They could all be, you know, maybe different variations, like they could all be counted or um, so on and so forth. But, you know, that's one of the, 
they definitely didn't, you know, uh, alter that one. So maybe yeah. just to their benefit there, uh, because that's obviously one of the, the fulfilled prophecies that he was crucified, yet not one broken bone, uh, which is crazy to think about how badly he was brutalized and yet not one bone was broken. Yeah. Yeah, it's very true. Yeah, and I think my favorite thing in all of these studies, um, whenever anyone tells a lie, uh, after a while, it's really hard to cover up. And you can almost always sniff out a lie. Uh, and through just, you know, if you keep pursuing and seeking, a lot of these guys changed uh, some things, but they weren't smart enough and diligent enough to change everything. And so... I think what we're going to find, what, and I, Jace, uh, what, when we get into the uh, Trinity specifically, Jason, um, mm -hmm. it, it, these lies, what you guys are going to find is they're very subtle, very, just a little swap here and there. So I almost yeah. think, it, I guess to rephrase my point, is if they were to actually go and just change the whole prophecy, people would go, go cry foul. Go, wait a second. No, 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 no. You, you can't do that. But if they can subtly change these things very craftily, like, you know, with my, you know, the fact that the body that was offered, stuff like that, then, you know, then you could really start doing things. So back to you. Yeah, no, that's very true. They, in some instances, they were very sneaky and just changed uh, real minor things, um, but some of the ones with the Trinity, I'll show you that um, one of the biggest ones I ever found is First John, or I'm sorry, uh, the book of the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verses 3 to 4, and all they did is change the placement of a period, but it literally changed every, um, I won't get on a rabbit trail right now, but I mean, it was just such a minor change, but it changed the meaning of the entire text. All right. So, yeah, if you want to read that next one, Matthew chapter 1. Matthew one twenty two from the NASB 1995, and it says, Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by Yahuwah through the prophets. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son. And they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means Elohim with us. Yeah, and again, in this one here, um, that prophecy in the Gospel of Matthew um, is nowhere in our Old Testament, at least not in that wording. Um, it was, uh, I believe it was changed again by the Masoretes. Um, they knew that Yeshua, again, was fulfilling another prophecy uh, that Mary was a virgin and that he was uh, born uh, through her. Um, now, again, here, when I say that this is not in our Bibles, um, because uh, most of the translators realize this is a corruption in the Hebrew text, just like the last one, they translate from the Greek Septuagint for this verse. Um, so I'll have you, Noel, read the next, uh, the two Isaiah uh, 714s, along with the footnotes, both for the CEV and the NETS. All right, uh, Isaiah or Yeshiahu 714, uh, th and this comes from the CEV. But Yahuwah will still give you proof. A virgin is pregnant 
and she will have a son and will name him Emmanuel. And then the CEV footnote says, virgin or young woman. In this context, the difficult Hebrew word did not imply a virgin birth. Uh, and then Isaiah uh, 7.14 uh, in the NETS says the following, For this reason, Yahuwah himself will give you a confirming sign. Look, this young woman is about to conceive and will give birth to a son. You, young woman, will name him Emmanuel. The NETS footnote says, uh, Tien uh, uh, Hebrew, I, Heb, I guess for Hebrew, the young woman. The Hebrew article has been rendered as a demonstrative pronoun, this, in the translation to bring out its force. Hopefully I read the uh, footnote correctly. Yeah, yeah, you're good. Um, now the NETS is one of the few, um, and again, this is the Hebrew NETS, not the Septuagint. Um, they're one of the few ones that translate this exactly like the Hebrew uh, says. Um, because most of the translations today um, are veering off of the Hebrew and going off the Septuagint and putting the word virgin in there, which I'm fine with because that's the correct thing. But again, this shows um, the Masoretes wanting to, again, discount Yeshua as being the Messiah. You know, basically, if you take that out, there's no longer a an Old Testament prophecy saying that a virgin will give birth to a son, um, which that was a prophecy that Yahweh put in uh, the Old Testament that Yeshua fulfilled. Um, and so, again, it's a shameful thing that the Masoretes tried to take out, but it seemed like men were willing to do anything in their power um, to be right, um, to be the victors in everything, and uh, you know, I'm not okay with that. All right. Um, yeah, if you want to read that last one there, the Brenton Septuagint. Absolutely. Isaiah 714 from the Brenton Septuagint. Uh, so this is the, the same passage we've been reading from. Therefore, Yahuwah himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive in the womb and shall bring forth the son, and thou shalt call his name Emmanuel. Yeah, and... This is the only translation here, or, or the Septuagint, that can translate it word for word because it's actually in uh, the text there. Um, so yeah, uh, now we can go on to number uh, five if you want to read. Numbers 24.5, this time from the KJV. How goodly are thy tents, O Yaakov, and thy tabernacles, O Yasharel. He shall pour the water out of his buckets, and his seed shall be in many waters, and his king shall be higher than Agag, and his kingdom shall be exalted. And if you want, you can read the Septuagint right away there with the difference. All right, so Numbers 24.5 from the Septuagint. How goodly are thy habitations, Yaakov, and thy tents, Yasharel. There shall come a man out of his seed, and he shall rule over many nations. And the kingdom of God shall be exalted, and his kingdom shall be increased. The Brenton Septuagint. Yeah, and if you look at the bold there, um, those don't even come close to saying the same thing. 
Um, he shall pour water out of his buckets, and his seed shall be in many waters. Um, you know, and then when you look in the Septuagint, there shall come a man out of his seed, out of the seed of Jacob, or Israel, um, and he shall rule over many nations. Um, and again, you know, they didn't remove every prophecy, obviously, but I'm not okay with uh, the Masoretes uh, removing any prophecies. So, you know, if they're trying to place more doubt on uh, Messiah, um, it, you know, it's for their own deceitful purposes. So uh, just throughout there, uh, obviously, yeah, there is a huge difference, but the, the difference even seems to continue beyond what you had put in bold. For example, in the KJV, it says, and his king, and his king shall be higher than Agag. Okay, I can understand that. But then in the Septuagint, it says, and the kingdom of Gog shall be exalted. Uh, so mm. that, that I, I read that, and uh, I'm like, what? <laughs> That's a whole different, probably like, you know, uh, a trail to go down, uh, a hound scent. Mm. But that, I've never read that before. So that has my curiosities. That's true. And uh, he should rule over many nations. Um, you know, obviously... Uh, in the Old Testament, um, the Jewish people were the only ones, or for the most part, that were in that. Um, and then the Gentiles came into play in the in the New Testament. Um, and so there's people from every nation that could be um, exalted or, or be his followers at that time. All right. Um, so that was five examples. Um, in my opinion, of the Masoretes uh, modifying places in the Old Testament uh, to diminish Yeshua. Um, and I do have more, but I just put, I'm trying to do five of each in these. Um, this next section here, um, again, is the Septuagint versus Masoretic. Um, these passages don't pertain to Yeshua. Um, a lot of them are quotations from our New Testament that the orthodox jews would not support and it's interesting because some of these prophecies that are in our new testament are missing from the masoretic um it almost makes it seem like if you wouldn't know better that our new testament was corrupt uh, until you realize that the masoretes had tampered with the text um so all right, we'll go to example one, if you want to read uh, Acts 15 there. It's fifteen fifteen from the NASB 1995, and it says, With this the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, After these things I will return, and I will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen, and I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, so that the rest of mankind may seek Yahuwah, and all the Gentiles who are called by my name. Yeah, and um, so in the book of Acts, they're obviously uh, quoting the Old Testament. Um, the only problem is when you look at uh, the regular Old Testament that we have from the Hebrew, it's no longer uh, an exact quote. Um, so I'll have you read that first one there in Amos 9. Amos 9.11 from the NASB 1995. In that day I will raise up the fallen booth of David and wall up its breaches. 
I will also raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name, declares Yahuwah, who does this. And this one is a, a pretty drastic modification. Uh, you know, the quote from the book of uh, Acts that we read um, was all mankind seeking the Lord. And this one here is talking about um, Israel uh, possessing Edom. Um, so they say completely different things. And again, for the Masoretes um, and the Orthodox Jews, they don't accept uh, followers of Yeshua. And so they don't traditionally support Gentiles having salvation. Um, and so, you know, this one here, you know, the quote from Acts was talking about all the Gentiles being called by his name, and they changed it so drastically. It now says um, that they may possess the remnant of Edom. Uh, so I'll have you read the Septuagint version and see if it comes back in line with the book of Acts then. All right. Amos 9.11 from the Brenton Septuagint. In that day, I will raise up the tabernacle of David that has fallen and will rebuild the ruins of it, and will set up the parts thereof that have been broken down, and will build it up as in the ancient days, and then here's the bold right here, that the remnants of men and all the Gentiles upon whom my name is called may earnestly seek me, saith Yahuwah, who does all these things, the Brenton Septuagint. Yes, yeah, so and now this again... Uh, all of a sudden, when you read the Septuagint, it lines up perfectly um, with the with a quote from the book of Acts. Um, and again, here you have you have Gentiles uh, and Jews. Whoever accepts Yeshua as the Messiah um, is going to be a follower. Is going to have eternal life. Um, but I don't think the Masoretes appreciated that. And so in this instance, they, they took out where the Gentiles were included in the kingdom. So um, unless you have anything else on that, we'll go to uh, example two with Hebrews 10. I will, I will say really quickly, and now uh, Jason hasn't been really a part of this debate in this community so, so much, but in this community, we've had very open discussions about uh, Paul and you guys know I've kind of looked at all sides and what I have what I have found I, I think what we just covered here in Amos 9:11 in the uh, the Masoretic versus the Greek Septuagint really tackles the issue well uh, and I don't want to go down this this whole path but just commentary on this that I believe one of the reasons he was so hated and the book of Acts, if you read it very carefully, straight up says that it was the Jews who were falsely accusing and starting to spread the rumors that he was lawless as accusations. And then the apostles stood up for him and said, no, he's not lawless. Um, it, it's this very idea that they hated the idea that he was offering salvation to the Gentiles and graft, having them be grafted into Israel when in fact... Uh, the the classic Zionist 
viewpoints is that they are to rule over us and not, you know, and that we are not, you know, we're the, we're the, we're the dogs. You know, if you're not, if you're not of that bloodline, you're, you're a dog. Um, and so this is, um, I, this swap right here, this is like really hits at the, at the core of a lot of that. Anyways, back to you, Jason. Yeah, no, I agree. It, uh, uh, I mean, just to think that someone would change the Bible to not include the Gentiles is, uh, you know, kind of crazy. Well, you know, the, the thing here, the thing here, the root of this is that the, it, this all comes down to the character of who the father is and the son. And it's very clear that they're like, you know what? I don't like this aspect of the father. I don't like that he's offering salvation to all the nations and that they're mm -hmm. going to be grafted in with us. We're better than them, you know, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, so we're going to just, let's just, you know, scribble this out and maybe no one will notice. And then we can craft the father into our image. And of course, you know, this will come in later with the Trinitarian debate as well. But uh, yeah, that's, it, it ultimately comes down to the fact that they don't like who the father is. Yeah, and to uh, to add to that, um, I know I've been guilty of this at times as well. I feel like as believers in general, um, so many of us are are tempted to think that we are the only ones that have a hundred percent truth, and everyone else is is lacking. Um, and really, we're all included in the body of Christ if we're followers of Messiah, and we all have part of the truth that we uh, we know in part and see in part, and we help to complete each other through discussion, through um, us learning from each other, really. And so I, the older I get, um, the more arrogant I, I think it is to be of the mindset that I am the only one with all the truth. Um, all I can do is study the best I know how, and all each of you guys can do is study the best you know how. Um, and then obviously we need to be open to correction as well. But I don't, I, I pray that we don't fall into that trap, you know. All right. Um, if you want to go to um, number two there on Hebrews 10. Hebrews 10, 37 says, and this is according to the NASB 1995, for yet in a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the uh, uh, preserving of the soul. Yeah, and uh, on verse 38 there in that bold section, um, my righteous one shall live by faith. That is in our regular Old Testaments. Um, but the uh, where it says, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. That prophecy is completely missing uh, from our Hebrew Old Testaments. Um, so I'll have you read uh, Habakkuk there, the first one, and look at how much different it sounds here. Habakkuk 2.3 in the NASB 1995. For the vision is yet for the appointed time, 
It hastens towards the goal, and it will not fail. Though it tarries, wait for it. For it will certainly come, it will not delay. Behold, as for the proud one, his soul is not right within him, but the righteous will live by his faith. An interesting thing to me here, the first one, and obviously this is talking about believers in, in Hebrews, um, it's basically saying what happens to a believer if he shrinks back. Um, but when you go into the Hebrew, um, it's actually two different people groups. Uh, at least it seems to be. Um, the You have the proud ones there whose soul is not right. And then you have but, the righteous will live by faith. And it almost seems like instead of talking about the same person, it's talking about um, two different types of people, which is you know, not what the text says. Um, so let's look at the Septuagint version and see if it comes closer to the quote out of Hebrews chapter 10. All right, Habakkuk 2.3 from the Thompson Septuagint. For the vision is for a time yet come, but it will spring up at last and will not be vain. Though he may tarry, wait for him, for he will assuredly come and will not fail. If anyone draw back, my soul hath no pleasure in him. But the just shall live by faith in me. And again, this brings it back uh, very close to the Hebrews 10 quote. Um, and now I want you to look at the verse um, from this perspective here uh, on the NASB, uh, the Hebrew uh, Habakkuk there. Um, Behold, as for the proud one, his soul is not right within him. I want you to imagine that um, as far as the Masoretes putting that on the Gentiles. Um, and then when it says, but the righteous will live by his faith, being the Orthodox Jews, um, separating into two people groups. Um, again, I don't think they like the fact of the Gentiles um, being grafted in. Um, you know, but Hebrews puts this all as one people group. Uh, the righteous shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him, uh, bringing back to one people group, joining the two into one. Now, if you have any thoughts on that also, Noel. Uh, no, I think, no. But yes, yeah, so that's another interesting one for me. Um, we'll go to example three, First uh, Peter 4. All right, First uh, Peter four eighteen from the KJV says, And if the righteous scarcely be saved, where shall the ungodly and the sinner appear? And then we see in the NASB 1995, uh, same verse, uh, passage 418, And if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? All right, and then um, this is uh, a quote. Uh, Peter's quoting uh, Proverbs, um, but I'll have you read now um, Proverbs 11 because this quote is now much different than, than Peter gave it. All right, well, this comes from Proverbs 11.31 in the NASB 1995. If the righteous will be rewarded in the earth, how much more the wicked and the sinner? And then the Brenton Septuagint says, if the righteous scarcely be saved, 
where shall the ungodly and the sinner appear? Yeah, in this verse, um, in the, the Hebrew, um, it talks about the, the righteous being rewarded uh, in the earth. Um, and that's a complete change on the text. Um, the, the text was originally written, I believe, as a uh, humbling text saying um, that if the righteous are barely saved, you know, that we, we have to pursue, we have to go after uh, the Father, um, what shall happen to the ungodly and the sinner, um, you know, meaning that they're, they have no chance. Um, so it's it's encouraging us to go deeper in our walk with the Lord. Um, but in Proverbs 11 in the Hebrew, um, it's talking about the righteous receiving rewards right now. Um, not that that can't happen, but that's not what the original text was saying. Um, now, this particular text, I don't know that this one is necessarily going against um, the Hebrew way of thought or the Orthodox Jewish way of thought. But again, when you're, if they do not like um, the Christian's New Testament uh, in the book of 1 Peter 4, when you go to your Old Testament after reading 1 Peter 4, you can't find that quote in there properly. And so it discounts uh, the Christian's New Testament. I don't know if you have anything else on that one, Noel. No, um, it seems to be, I mean, I'm trying to really get a handle on if you were to change something to say that if the righteous be rewarded in the earth, it, it just seems like, because um, one of the things we see, particularly in the New Testament, when uh, Paul is writing like to the Romans, uh, church, it seems to be this big emphasis that the, the Yahudim did not think that judgment will come to them first. And Paul is saying, uh, guess what, guys? Judgment is coming to you guys first. And of course, we know that happened in 70 AD, and, and judgment came on Jerusalem particularly. And so it seems like perhaps uh, they're trying to kind of tweak this a little bit to say, well, aha, we are righteous because we are the chosen people. And so you could see how something might not sit well with them being like, um, it doesn't matter if you're the chosen people or not. You've got to pursue righteousness. Like that doesn't just come to you genetically. It doesn't just come because you're, you know, the children of Abraham. So that's how I'm reading it. Yeah, no, that's a very good point. Um, and when Yeshua walked the earth, one of the people groups that, he, or two of the people groups that he was most um, against or, or reprimanded the most was the Pharisees and the Sadducees who would have been known as the righteous, um, you know, but he was telling them that, you know, you're doing it outwardly, uh, but it's not there inwardly. So, all right, let's go to example four then, uh, Hebrews 13. Hebrews 13, six in the NASB 1995. So that we confidently say, uh, it could be, uh, I guess uh, I'll say, uh, Adonai is my helper. I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? Um, 
and I'll have you read, I guess might as well just read the next two right away, the King James and the Brenton, and then I'll discuss it. All right. This so I read from Hebrews thirteen six and now I'm reading from Psalms one eighteen six and the KJV and immediately after, as Jason said just said, the Brenton Septuagint. Yahuwah is on my side, I will not fear. What can man do unto me? Now reading for the Septuagint. Yahuwah is my helper, and I will not fear what man shall do to me. And you may have more in information on this too, Noel. Um, but in my mind, in the, the Orthodox Jewish uh, mindset, um, they're used to thinking of Yahweh um, as their king or their leader. Um, but the adjective of helper might not be as normal for them, um, that he is our, our help in times of need. Um, and so it seems like this, again, was modified in here to take that adjective out of there. That's an interesting thought, and I've never really thought about that before. Um, you know, what the difference is versus, I mean, I understand what you just said, that the idea of thinking of as your king versus your helper. And, um, of course, you know, Yahusha showed us the way by uh, the greatest in the kingdom is the servant of all, right? He got down mm -hmm. and he, he washed the feet. He served uh, humanity. And th that is my idea when I think of uh, Yahuwah being my helper, that, you know, Yahusha is only modeling what he sees from the Father. And I couldn't answer that if what their thoughts are on uh, the Most High as their king versus their helper. Mm -hmm. But good thought. Yeah. Yeah, and again in this passage, um, you know, when you read Hebrews chapter uh, 13.6, um, you can't find that quote in our Old Testament. Um, but when you go to the Greek Septuagint, it shows up uh, in there again. And this happens over and over. And it's my fear that we're reading a somewhat corrupted text. And so I guess my heart is just to, it's not... Even the Septuagint is not 100% perfect. I'm not going to uh, to lie on that, but my heart is to read as close as I can to the original. Um, so let's go on to the last one in this section, um, number five, Romans 2. Romans 2.24 says, For the name of Elohim is blasphemed among the Gentiles, the Goyim, because of you. Just as it is written, that comes from the NASB 1995. All right. Um, now, this is a quote from Isaiah 52, um, but only half of it is contained in our regular Bibles. Um, let's read these two versions of Isaiah 52 um, and look how much differently it is. And you'll see a pretty obvious motive in this one. Isaiah 52, 5, Now therefore, what do I have here, declares Yahuwah, seeing that my people have been taken away without cause? Again, Yahuwah declares, Those who rule over them howl, and my name is continually blasphemed all day long. Now that comes from the NASB 1995. And then we're going to be reading from the Brenton Septuagint, which says, Isaiah or Yeshiah, Yeshiahu 52, 5, And now, why are ye here? Thus saith Yahuwah, because my people was taken for nothing. Wonder, wonder ye how. Thus saith Yahuwah, on account of you, my name 
is continually blasphemed among the Goyim. So just uh, reiterate here that the, the NASB says, my name is continually blasphemed all day long. It doesn't say because of you. And then the Septuagint, on account of you, which is addressing his people, uh, my name is continually blasphemed among the Goyim. Yeah. And so in this particular passage, it seems like there's a very obvious motive here for the Masoretes to the Orthodox Jewish scribes. Um, there's two things, uh, like Noel was saying, that are missing here. Um, the reason his name is blasphemed, which was the Orthodox Jews, um, so they have a motive to take that out of there. They don't want their name in there as being the reason um, that Yahweh's name is blasphemed. Um, but also, it's kind of a spit in the face to them. Uh, it says it's blasphemed um, among the Gentiles. And so the non-chosen people are blaspheming because of the chosen people. And so there's kind of a couple things happening here, but you can sort of see an obvious motive why they would want to change this passage. And if you yeah, have anything else. This obviously comes, uh, whoever these scribes were responsible for this, this comes from a purely rebellious heart. I mean, it's like um, I was saying earlier, just the, the, their contempt in court towards the father and oh you you think we're uh what you know that the, the goyim are blasphemed because of us well let's just let's just change that and then we can <laughs> we can all live in the illusion that uh we're not blaspheming um or he, that who is not being blasphemed because of us we can continue in our in our lifestyle uh you know worshiping and observing him how we want to do it yes and this is the you know the last one of the ten that we're looking at between the um, at least for the Masoretes uh, the ten that I think were possibly done by the Masoretes on purpose. Some of them could have just been because it was translated over so many years that they made a a slip of the pen or a mistake. Um, but in the beginning, I started studying uh, New Testament uh, manuscript history. Um, and it wasn't until years later that I started looking into um, the Old Testament, and it, I still remember it. it. It just jumped out at me um, that our oldest Hebrew Old Testament was from 1008, which if you really sit down and think about that one fact, that is absolutely ridiculous. We should have much, much older complete manuscripts and I'm not talking about fragmentary Dead Sea Scrolls. Um, I think there is another Hebrew manuscript from the 900s that they utilize some, but it's not a complete. But why don't we have any from the 300s, the 400s, even the 500s for that matter? And so I really want you guys to think about that. I think they had they had to be destroyed for a purpose. Um, it had to be um, by deceitful men, and if they destroyed it, they could rewrite history, right? So you you destroy all the manuscripts, which it was way easier to do back then without the digital age, and then you can rewrite history for all of time. So do you have anything else on that before we go on to the Trinity section? I had a lot of thoughts coming to me, but uh, we'll just leave those unsaid at the moment. And yeah, let's uh, go on to the Trinity. 
All right. Um, so we're going to look at um, quite a few verses, uh, five in each section, uh, where people modified the Bible for the doctrine of the Trinity. Um, and some of these are really, really blatant. And there's a... Uh, on some of them, there's a lot of uh, proof behind it, and you can really look at the manuscripts and show what years they did it. Um, other ones were hidden a little bit better. Um, so we'll look at example one, if you're going to read both of those. Um, and these are a huge difference in these. Just uh, to to make it clear to everyone, we're, we're transitioning from the... There, there's two things we're looking at tonight, and the first was how... The Yahudim had changed their scripture, the 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 of course the Torah, the the Tanakh, it to kind of change who the Father is, uh, and as well as kind of scrubbed scrub his son and some of the prophecies from it. And now we're going to be shifting to what the Trinitarians um, did to push in their doctrine. Uh, if yes, I'm not mistaken, I'm glad you. I, I should have probably clarified that. I thanks for that. I, yeah, this um, this next section is going completely the opposite direction. So the first group, the Masoretes, tried to diminish Yeshua or um, cut him off at the knees, so to speak. They did not want him to be the Messiah. This next group, um, they may have thought they were honoring him, but in the end, they ended up saying that um, the Son is the Father. The Son is the same being as the Father, which is very heretical as well. Um, I might get stoned in some churches for saying that, but I, I just want to speak the truth. Um, but yeah, so this, this next whole section is people trying to embellish on who Yeshua is. Not that he's not the Savior, not that he's not the way to salvation, but they're trying to now say he is the same being as the Father. He was never created. He he has the same power, um, same knowledge, all these things. Um, so, sorry, I'll get in a rabbit trail, but uh, yeah, we can go with the next verses there. Right, so it's one thing to be theologically wrong on bullet points. I mean, there's things that you guys, you guys know, there's things that I'm wrong on, there's things that we're all wrong on, we're trying to adjust, hopefully according to what Scripture says, and you know, these investigations, I love these. These are so fun to really dig at these and 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 ask what is the truth, right? But then it's a completely different thing to say, I want to be so right about how I am crafting Elohim into my image, you know, my idol that of uh, theology or whatever that I'm making, that I'm going to actually change scripture in order to make that happen. So here we go. This is First uh, John 5, 7 in the KJV, and it says, for there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, or the Ruach HaKodesh, and these three are one. And there are three that bear witness in earth, the Ruach, and the water, and the blood, and these three agree in one. And then 1 John 5, 7 in the NASB 1995 says, For there are three that testify, the Ruach, and the water, and the blood, and the three are in agreements. Yes, and I want to address one thing here. Um, I've had a lot of people ask me uh, certain questions before, which are good questions. Um, they'll say in the NESB, um, why is verse 7 so short? Um, 
Well, the uh, the Texas Receptus or the Greek text behind the King James, New King James, um, that is where in that Greek text is where the verse numbers were first incorporated. And so every Bible today um, goes off of that Texas Receptus numbering system. And so you'll have some people that are King James only saying the NESB skips a verse because it goes from seven to nine. When in actuality, the text behind the King James was from 1100 AD. And in some instances, they added uh, a couple verses uh, into a text. Um, now, this one here, the First John uh, 5, 7, if they wouldn't have gotten caught, this would have been the number one proof text in our entire Bibles to support the Trinity. Um, however, um, you won't find this in any discussions today or any um, knowledgeable arguments on the Trinity because basically every theologian knows that this is a modification, and so they will skip right past this when arguing the Trinity because it's they'll just be made fun of. Um, this one's so well documented that um, Erasmus, um, he, he did five editions of the Greek Old Testament that would eventually become the Greek text behind the King James. Um, and in his third edition in the year 1522, he added this verse into the Greek Texas Receptus. Um, so this was one of the most blatant, almost laughable editions. And this was the first one I found years ago. And I started asking questions, you know, if the Trinity is so clear in the Bibles, why would they have to modify them to incorporate it? So I don't know if you have anything else on that, Noel. No, I don't. That's um, that's something that I would love to dig into more myself, uh, what was going on there. So that's good. That's just good to know information. Yeah, and um, this specific one, um, I have it in the text there, but it actually, this modification actually is so famous it has a name, and I don't know if I'm pronouncing it right, but the, uh, the Johannine comma. So if you type in the uh, Johannine comma online, you'll find article after article, pretty lengthy, talking about how um, well documented this modification was. All right, um, next one is Matthew 28. Matthew 28, 19 from the NASB 1995. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Ruach HaKadosh, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And then the next one comes from, uh, oh, I think that's all I'm going to read from. Yeah. Um, now this one here is a different kind of modification. So I want to um, clarify this. This is in... Basically, every manuscript that we have in our possession today, as written in the NESB, um, almost every translation will read this way. Interesting thing is, um, the Council of Nicaea was in 325, and our oldest manuscript is from right about the year 325, give or take the Codex Vaticanus. The Sinaiticus is from around 350. So we actually have no near complete manuscripts, just small papyrus fragments. 
um, before the Council of Nicaea. And this verse was the Trinitarians' battle cry back at the time of Nicaea, and they actually went back and modified church historian, church uh, history writers um, to put this in there. They even went into the Didache and put this in there, but they forgot it was in two places. So if you read the Didache today, um, I think it's in chapter 7, it'll have the Trinitarian version. And then I think in chapter 9, I could be off a little bit. Chapter 9, it says, baptize in my name, meaning Yeshua's name. And so they weren't smart enough to go and read the whole thing. They just went to the baptism chapter and changed that one. Um, so this one is pretty well hidden, to be honest with you. And this is in almost every Bible today. Um, let's see here. I'll have you read um, the Young's uh, literal translation. And he has brackets around here of the of what he thinks or suspects to be an addition to the text. Okay, Matthew 28, 19. Having gone, then, disciple all the nations, and then here are the brackets, baptizing them to the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Ruach HaKodesh, teaching them to observe all whatever I did command you, in bracket, and lo, I am with you all the days to the full end of the age. So let me just repeat that really quickly without the brackets. Uh, having gone then, disciple all the nations, and lo, I am with you all the days till the full end of the age. And that sounds completely different. Um, and only through a, uh, a study of history can you find this out. Um, but if you type in, uh, you know, is there a variation of Matthew twenty eight nineteen online, you will find a, a ton of articles on this. Um, if you want to read from the uh, Shem Tov there, the next one. Yes. So this comes from, yeah, the Shem Tov, uh, the Hebrew Matthew 28, 18, same passage. Uh, Yahusha drew near to them and said to them, to me has been given all power in heaven and earth. Go and teach them to carry out all the things which I have commanded you forever. And so this is one of the few um, versions that no one had ever um, gotten to. Um, and I know you guys had read, is it pronounced the, the Sephirod, the Hebrew, uh, Matthew? Yes. Um, no, we, we read from uh, the Yochanan, the, the, the Gospel of Yochanan. But I know where you're going with this, uh, so go okay. ahead and, and say it. And now that one, um, that one is in the, the Sephirod. Um, and I, that document is written, I think, in the year 1450, if my memory serves me correctly. And so that was able to get incorporated into that document as well. So it's always kind of fun to chase these things as far back as you can in history to, to find where it goes back to the original. Now, um, I'll just read this next part here. Um, it's quoted by... Uh, some of the church writers um, in history, some of the early early ones. Um, now, Origen wrote this, this first one, in around the year 246 to 248 before it was modified. And his quote on it um, just says, make disciples of all the nations. 
which that is very similar to the Young's literal translation without the uh, brackets. And then Eusebius, who was, um, they basically were both in the same library in Alexandria. Um, it was the, the largest library of biblical text in the entire world. Um, and that was actually where um, the Gospel of the Hebrews was at, the one we had looked at in the Ruach HaKodesh study. Um, Jerome actually traveled to that library um, and uh, translated it there. So Eusebius, working out of the same library, um, he quotes it, go and make disciples of all the nations. Now, like I say, the only way to find this modification is through a study on history. Now, everyone has heard of the Council of Nicaea in 325. Uh, at least most of us have. That was one of the most popular early church con councils. Um, they didn't fully incorporate the doctrine of the Trinity at that time, but they, they started to pave the way for it. Now, interesting, uh, interesting note, though, um, there was um, a council of Antioch um, in early 325. So um, Eusebius of Caesarea um, goes to this council of Antioch in early 325, and he does not agree to uh, what would become the doctrine of the Trinity. And so he is excommunicated from the church. He is no longer a bishop or priest. He is kicked out of the church. Um, so later on in 325, um, at the Council of Nicaea, which took, I think it started off in the summertime, um, he resisted for a little bit. And then he eventually had his arm twisted and he signed on to what would become the doctrine of the Trinity. Um, and at the end of the council, while he's still at the council, he writes um, a letter uh, to his church. And so we're going to skip down just a little bit here where it says, um, letter of Eusebius of Caesarea to his church regarding the Nicene Creed written in 325. Um, and in this quote here, as also our Lord said when he sent forth his disciples to preach, go teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And following this council, Eusebius would go on to quote it this way in basically almost all of his writings. So if you look at his writings prior to 325, he quotes it the short way. If you look at his writings following 325, he quotes it the long way, and he got excommunicated from the church at the Council of Antioch. Um, is is kind of this whole uh, struggle. He he started out trying to maintain truth, but then he gave in to the man and signed on to the doctrine. Um, so it's, it's a little bit more of a difficult one to prove than some of the other ones. Um, I don't know if you have any thoughts on that one, Noel. I think it's messed up beyond words what happened to him and you know and it's sad to see that he um caved in and you know obviously the pressure had to be enormous um you know I don't know what would have happened to him if he didn't uh if he would have taken a you know long walk off a short pier or uh there would have been perhaps propaganda against him through the ages and we would have thought of him as a terrible apostate I don't really know but uh it's definitely um it, really interesting to at least you know see how intense we see this in theological circles where 
um, the Trinity issue is, I've said this before, and I probably should have said this earlier tonight. This is such a big issue that uh, Christians will, um, Jason, you've said it, you've seen it yourself. I've seen it myself. They will basically say you are um, excommunicated. They might not say excommunicated from the church, but you are outside the plan of salvation at this point. You are now, you have fallen yes. from grace. This was the test. You botched it. You stumbled over it. Um, you you are now denying, you know, who God is. And uh, so this is huge. And, and Christians are so afraid of uh, you. You step outside the Trinity. You are now outside the umbrella of the church, um, pretty much. I mean, this is the big one. And so um, I think that they're just afraid of being wrong. They're so afraid of being wrong that they they can't you know, pursue the truth on this. And so you see that with Eusebius. Maybe he really did convince himself in his mind that, that he was wrong before and this is right. I don't know. I'm not inside his head. So There's actually um, a lot of documentation um, on the struggles at Nicaea. Um, there's uh, a really good website called uh, fourthcenturychristianity.com. And uh, in one of my books, it's basically a book on history, and a huge chunk of the the history is on the Council of Nicaea and the Council of Constantinople because that's where a lot of the things we believe today came from. Um, and Noel, have you heard of uh, um, Arius or what they call the Arian heresy for the people that yeah. don't believe in the Trinity? Yes. Okay. Um, interesting thing is. Um, the whole Council of Nicaea was a battle between Alexander and Arius, and and then this whole dispute arose in Constantine. When you read his quotes from history, he did not even care who won. He just wanted peace in his kingdom, so he wanted everyone to agree, to decide whatever they would, and uh, and agree together. But Eusebius of Caesarea and Arius were friends. And they believed um, almost an identical thing. Um, Eusebius eventually caved because he had already gotten excommunicated and he wanted to be a part of the Roman um, church system again. Arius did not. And so Arius, is, he goes down in history as um, the, uh, this huge heretic um, where Eusebius is looked upon in a good light in history. Um, it's actually pretty sad what they did to Arius because when you look at his quotes and what he did, um, he actually loved um, the father. He actually loved the son, and he just wanted to bring truth similar to what uh, what we're doing today. And he, um, they think that he actually got poisoned um, and taken out, but he was kicked out of the church. Um, and Constantine actually put an order out after Nicaea that every writing that Arius did was to be burned. And if they did not destroy every writing and you were found hiding it in your house, you were to be killed. Um, and that's actually a documented quote from Constantine, um, just a deliberate burning of any text that went against their doctrine. Go. I mean, we see the same. We see the same propaganda today. With uh, I don't need to go all, through all that, but uh, just people in the world today, world leaders and such, that are just uh, villainized and just 
you know, destroyed in propaganda in the media. And so that makes total sense. I will just throw in my uh, two cents here. It was asked in the discussion of what was the purpose of making up the Trinity. And uh, from my perspective, from the mystery religions, it, this really comes down to sun worship, S-U-N, like the sun in the sky. Uh, the, the the idea of the avatar role, this goes back to the pharaohs, this goes back to the mysteries of Babylon. And you see Trinitarian roles in, uh, throughout uh, the, the Greeks, the, the Egyptians, the Babylonians. But the, the idea that the father is the son, or I should say the son is the father, uh, the, the avatar, like uh, the idea that you, I'll, I'll say Jesus here, Jesus is like the avatar of the father. Uh, that, that goes right into all these mystery religions. So if there are uh, neophytes or initiates or, uh, you know, master masons or whatever you want to call it, that are now infiltrating the church or leading the church, that could be a huge influencer to why they want to bring in this um uh, you know, blend in the mystery religions into the Roman Catholic Church. So that is my perspective on this, and people might have a different idea. Well, that's a good point, Noel. Um, I've actually thought about that quite a bit because I've had a lot of people ask me the same question. Why uh, would someone incorporate this doctrine, or what's so wrong about it? Uh, and the thing that stood out to me the most is, um, what did Yeshua say throughout all of the gospels uh, i've came to see what i've came to um do what i see my father do and i've come to give glory to the father and he shows us to to pray to the father and um and worship the father and uh, and i'll ask you Noel, what would be one of satan's biggest goals um you know, obviously Satan wanted to have the worship, but if he couldn't have the worship, what would be one of his biggest goals? Well, one of his biggest goals, well, I mean, he's a pathological liar to begin with. I mean, he can't tell the truth on anything. So even when he's telling the truth, I think he, he, he's got to lie. Um I don't know. I mean, you tell me what his biggest goals are. I, I will throw in there that Michael in the comment section, he, he brought up a great point that uh, it also hides the Holy Family. And I know that's something that you're yeah. uh, passionate about, too, the Ruach HaKadosh, um, you know, because that 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 makes a lot of people. That's the next thing that falls apart. It's like, well, wait a second. If there's not a Trinity, uh, the father, if the son is uh, and we're going to get into this guy's uh, he's uh, J uh, Jason's going to talk more about this. But if the son is a literal a son of the father then what's the ruach HaKadesh, right and um yeah. i i remember this is one of the questions i asked for years in the church uh, I, I would ask pastors and other things i'm like so why is he called the son if he's not really his son and they're like oh that's just just an honorable title title just a metaphor i'm like really it's a it seems pretty literal to me but uh it's just yeah. one of those questions that just gets shut down but anyways uh why why do you think satan would want to uh, to change this. Um, well, and, and Michael had a, a good point, and you know I loved him and his and Rob's presentation. They did. Um, you know the nuclear family is taken away, but in my opinion, the number one reason um, why Satan would want to incorporate the doctrine of the Trinity is because essentially he is taking glory away from Yahweh. Um, all of a sudden. Um, you know, how many scriptures are there saying that um, 
Yahweh is um, the only one, that he is the, the, the greatest, that he is the most. Uh, everything goes back to him. And all of a sudden, through the doctrine of the Trinity, we're now saying the Father and the Son uh, and Ruach are all the same being or same essence. And not only are the same essence, they have the same knowledge, the same power, uh, the same authority. Um, and so it essentially, and you can't see my hands right now, but if you have your arm up as high as it can go to try to show the glory of Yahweh, which we'll never do, uh, um, but he is the, the highest of the high. And he had a son who um, is less than he is. And scripture, um, I know I'll probably get hate mail on this, but scripture is very clear. Um, John 14, Yeshua says, I go to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. Um, John 17, uh, 3, he says, that they may know you, the only true God, or Elohim, um, and Yeshua, whom you have sent. Um, and so we're really diminishing uh, the, the rightful place of Yahweh, and we're bringing him down to the same level um, as Ruach and as Yeshua. And there is scripture after scripture showing the Father's greatness that he is above, he's above all. Um, and I have a, a book on this topic too, um, on the, the Trinitarian type of stuff and just kind of going through verse by verse. Um, so I'll try not to get in a huge rabbit trail, but we're going to discuss a lot of these things as we go on tonight. Do you have anything else with that, Noel? No, no, I think it, you've got so much great material up ahead, we should keep going. Um, now, as far as this modification, um, I believe that Scripture teaches us to baptize in Yeshua's name. And the only time in the Bible that it's recorded any different is Matthew 20, 19. And if, if you notice, basically every mainstream church today, um, almost all of them baptize in the, the triune name. Um, now, if this is the case, if Yeshua said this before he ascended to heaven, um, all the disciples would have had to forget this and go against his word and baptize in different ways. Um, so if you want to read, I think there's five examples I have there. If you just want to read through those real quick, and we'll see how the Bible tells us to baptize. All right. Well, the first one comes from Luke 24, 45 and the NASB 1995. And it says this, then he opened their minds to understanding the scriptures. And he said to them, thus it is written that the Hamashiach or the Mashiach would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day. And that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations, beginning from Yerushalayim. Hopefully I read the right passage. Uh, the next one comes from Acts 2.38. And it says, Peter, or Kepha, said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Yehusha HaMashiach for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Ruach HaKadosh. That's the NASB 1995. Uh, in fact, all of these are. Uh, Acts 10.48 says, And he ordered them to be baptized in the name of Yehusha HaMashiach. Then they asked them to stay on for a few days. Acts 19.5. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of uh, Adonai Yehusha. Romans 
Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Yehusha HaMashiach have been baptized into his death? And so in looking at these, um, and this isn't all of them, there's, there's more verses um, in the New Testament talking about baptizing uh, just in Yeshua's name. And obviously he is the way to the Father. Um, but this verse became a Trinitarian battle cry. And almost every church today baptizes in the, the triune name. Uh, and one little thing, and some of these things can end up being a big deal. I don't want anyone to fear that because I was baptized in this way, I don't have salvation. I don't believe that. Um, the Lord knows um, secrets of our hearts, and uh, I'm not trying to say that you're not going to heaven, so don't hear me wrong. But when you say baptize in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, you are no longer saying the name of Yeshua. And what a lot of the Orthodox Jews always believed um, back in the days— and and I guess maybe the Messianics uh, as well, when you dipped someone in the water and you proclaimed a name, you were releasing the power of that name into the water when you dunked them. And so essentially, no longer is the name of Yeshua spoken. Um, you just say Father, Son, and Spirit. And so it's just an interesting thing that the original text says to baptize in Yeshua's name. And when you're dunked, his power is in the water, and then the, the Ruach HaKodesh will come upon you. Um, and again, I, I don't want anyone to fear that they don't have salvation because of that, but looking at all these verses, it's pretty clear that this was a modified text. Um, it's a little more hidden in some. That was, uh, that was wildly profound. That was really, really good. Oh, thank you. I um, definitely have looked into the subject of baptism uh, quite a bit. Um, I feel like it has a special place in the Lord's heart, and there is so much life and power through it um, that we haven't always tapped into. Um, and so, I, you know, some of these things, it's almost like when things open up in your mind, you can almost uh, feel um, heaven upon it or whatever. Um, so, yeah, we'll go on to the next one, unless you have any comments on on that. No, I think we should keep moving. There's some great stuff ahead. You want me to start uh, reading from 1 Timothy? Yes. Mm -hmm. 1 Timothy 3.16 from the KJV. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. Elohim was manifest in the flesh, justified in the Ruach, seen of angels, preached unto the Goyim, believed on in the world, received up into glory. And then we read from the same uh, passage, 1 Timothy 3.16 in the NASB 1995, it says, By common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He who was revealed in the flesh was vindicated in the Ruach, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. A known corruption in the 1100 uh, AD text that goes behind the, the King James, the Texas Receptus, um, where they put um, God's name in here, or Adonai, um, 
the real text just says he who was revealed in the flesh, meaning Yeshua. Um, and it's interesting. You'll have even people that don't own a King James or New King James Bible, and they will quote 1 Timothy 3.16 as God was manifest in the flesh. And I'm sure you guys have heard this verse time and time again, um, not knowing that it's a modification. Um, you know, if you had the Father manifest in the flesh, all of a sudden, as um, Yeshua's on the cross dying, they're saying that that's the Father, and he's praying to himself. You know, uh, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And, and that's actually, I'll try not to get in the rabbit trail on that, but on the cross, Yeshua doesn't say, Father, why have you forsaken me? He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And there's a just a, a whole lot of depth to that phrase. Uh, there's a lot of verses in the New Testament where Yeshua calls the Father his God. Um, but so this is just a, a huge corruption. Um, and that's really the only place where in the New Testament where we get the idea that the Father came to the earth as a man. Um, and that, I think that's a very heretical statement to try to make that um, that Yah was the one walking the earth because he never left the heavens. Um, so I'll stop there with that. Do you have anything else with that one, Noel? Uh, this audience right here is is going to be very well aware with the idea of pre-existence, but that's essentially what is being put forward here in the NASB. It, it's quite obviously different to say Elohim was manifest in the flesh versus he who was revealed in the flesh, meaning that Yahushua HaMashiach pre-existed. And, you know, mm -hmm. that's obviously going to cause tailspins uh, for some people if he's not, quote-unquote, God, you know, and that's, that's mm -hmm. a whole nother, so... But obviously, I think that's a point that is going to be as already readily accepted by this group. Good. Um, for the sake of time, uh, on the next section, if you just want to read the NASB and the uh, Bretons. Okay, so skipping the KJV, we're going to Yeshayahu 96 or Isaiah 96 and the NASB 1995. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty Elohim, Eternal Father, Prince of Shalom. And then the Brinson Septuagint says, For a child is born to us, and a son is given to us, whose government is upon his shoulder. And his name is called the Messenger of Great Counsel. For I will bring Shalom upon the princes and health to him. Yeah, and that one is a huge uh, change. I mean, that... Those verses are not even, not even close to each other. Um, now, usually within a lie, you still leave part of the truth in there. So, if you look at the NI at the NESB, it does say "wonderful counselor." You see that in there, and that's the first name that it's given, correct? Uh, and so, when you go to the Brenton Septuagint, uh, it says his name is called the Messenger of Great Counsel. Well, in the Hebrews. I believe the Trinitarians um, did some modifying to the Hebrew um, to the Hebrew text as well in certain places, um, especially after the 325 Council of Nicaea to assist their doctrines. Um, now, when you have the term mighty God, that's referring to the Most High God or Yahweh. Um, and so Yeshua would not have that name. And when you have the name Eternal Father, that is only 
going to Yahweh again. And so you have two names in that phrasing that would not apply to Yeshua um, and would help incorporate the doctrine of the Trinity. Because if you say Yeshua is the eternal father, now you're starting to muddy things up where it just seems like they're kind of mashed together. Now, does that make sense to you, Noel? Yes. So, and I have yes, some other does. verses um, below there, um, which we can skip over, but you guys can read those at your leisure. Um, let's see here. On the next one, if you just want to read the, the World English Bible and the Bretons for time. Right, well, this comes from Jeremiah 23.6, the W-E-B. What did you call that, the World English Bible? World English Bible. Um, basically, they use the ASD and incorporate Yahweh's name into it. All right. In his days, Yehuda shall be saved, and Yashorel shall dwell safely. And this is his name by which he shall be called uh, Yahweh, or Yahuwah, our righteousness. And then the Brenton Septuagint says, In his days, both uh, Yehuda shall be saved, and Yashorel shall dwell securely. And this is his name, which uh, Yahuwah shall call him. And it says, uh, Josedek uh, among the prophets. Yeah, yeah. and uh, Josedek was a high priest in the Old Testament times. And Yeshua was from the tribe of Judah, right? And so not everyone was necessarily expecting him to be a high priest, which was the job of a Levite. And so this was a prophecy saying that even though um, he is from the tribe of Judah, he will also be a high priest, that he will um, surpass your expectations of him. So that's what the prophecy was supposed to mean. Um, now, this is the only place in the Bible where, because of the change, Trinitarians will say um, Yeshua is called Yahweh, um, which I believe is a heretical statement that they, they are not the same. I mean, they, they've even made songs about this, you know, or you probably heard the song three in one, he is Yahweh. Um, and, and so a lot of people will quote this verse um, just to try to bring about their doctrine. Have you ever heard any of that before, Noel? Uh, I This is the first time I've encountered uh, Jeremiah 23.6 in uh, the Septuagint. I have never heard the song you were talking about. Um, the only thing I could think of is the doxology that I would remember singing growing up that would, uh, was it praise? Wait, um, oh, it's, it's past me now. You guys know what the doxology is. I'm on the spot. That's the only one I can remember singing about the Trinity. Yeah, praise the Father, praise the Son, praise the Spirit. Yeah, yeah the Holy three Spirit. In one. Three in one, yeah. Yeah, so praise, yeah Father, I mean, praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. Yeah. Um, now we get to um, a little bit more of a hidden one, and this is the one I talked about earlier where they just moved a period. Um, so if you want to read the next two versions here of uh, John 1, 3. All right, and it's uh, under the example of the Trinitarians erase Yahusha's heavenly birth. Oh, yeah. So I, I'm sorry. I should have uh, put a segue in there. These next five... Um, the huge argument at the Council of Nicaea was, was Yeshua created by the Father, or did Yeshua always exist? 
And so because the Bible had uh, numerous places talking about um, the Father creating Yeshua, they had to modify it in order to try to suppress this. Um, so that's what this next section is about. Sorry, no. I'm sorry for putting uh, <laughs> the doxology in your head. Some people are commenting about that. I actually gave that in a book which is no longer published, my first Flat Earth book called uh, Avoid Science Falsely So-Called. Uh, I actually put the doxology in, in there of, of proof of that. I'm I'm sorry, I'm mixing I'm mixing discussions here. Um anyway because you know above and below and all that. Anyways, uh so uh this is uh, the Trinitarians erase Yeshua's heavenly birth, and I hope you guys are all paying attention uh, still and not nodding off because this is the part of Jason's article that excited me the most. I was really like amped to go through what we're about to go through. Uh, so this comes from John Oriel Cannon 1 3, and it says, All things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being. Uh, here's the bold part that has come into being in him was life and the life was the light of men. Now I had to actually read this a few different times to get the difference, but the, the differences are really glaring. So hopefully uh, if, for those of you even watching on YouTube, you can see this on the screen. Uh, John one, three says in the NRSV, all things came into being through him and without him, not one thing came into being what has come into being in him was life and the life was the light of all people. Yeah, and obviously focus on the uh, the bold text in there. You can see if you follow the bold that the wording in those two verses is very similar with just the moving of a period. Um, now, it is true um, there were no periods in the original Greek manuscripts. Um, however, in some of the older ones we have, in the 300s, they did start um, incorporating periods in some of the manuscripts. So when you look at the, the arguments of the oldest manuscripts, you'll have some that don't argue either way because there's no punctuation. Then you'll have others of the oldest manuscripts that do contain it. And surprisingly, um, it hands down, the oldest manuscripts support uh, the period in the place of the NRSV. Uh, including, which this shocked me um, to no end, the Nessel Allen 28th edition, which I don't know if you guys are into the manuscript uh, study, but that is the go-to text that almost every New Testament today is translated from, the NIV, NLT, NASB, ESV. Um, almost every translation is, is from this. Now, in saying this, even though the Nestle Allens has the period in the spot of the second version, because this goes so against doctrine, people will not follow uh, that, and they will change it to uh, the, the way the NASB has it. So even though I do support the NASB 95 as being one of the most accurate translations, they do not have it right here, and almost no Bibles do. The NRSB-V is one of the few that stuck their neck out there and translated it uh, in the correct way. Um, now, honestly, this is not something that a normal person would find as they're reading through the Bible because it, it would never come about. Um, I had started reading the works of origin a few years ago. I just felt like the Lord was telling me to read the writings of origin who wrote before the the Council of Nicaea, and this quote down here 
uh, from Origen, it says, What was made in him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not grasp it. And when I read that, it just leaped off the page. I mean, I could feel the Lord's presence just overtake me on it. And so I started researching it, and lo and behold, the oldest manuscripts support this, that that is how the original text read. Um, now, before we get into too much discussion on that, let's read this uh, next section. Um, and for the sake of time, Noel, I'll just have you read the NASB and then skip down to the NETS because these verses go right hand in hand. You there, Noel? Yes, uh, I, a little embarrassing. I started talking and didn't turn off my uh, didn't turn on my microphone. Uh, so I just want to emphasize that you know we 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 can take the next hour hour and a half to get through the rest of this. So let's we don't need to rush this. This is really good material, and um, and I did I do want to just comment really quickly on what is at stake with John one three, and it it's a big difference between because we know that the Father is. It, Yahusha, or just say Jesus, he's not our father, right? Nobody calls him our father. Unless if you're, I guess, a really diehard Trinitarian. I don't think even Trinitarians do that. I think that there's some serious cognitive dissonance in there. They're like, no, 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 he's our brother, but then there's the father. Well, if, if all things came into being through Yahusha or Jesus, uh, then he would be our father, right? There's a reason we say to, to Yahuwah, the Most High, that he is the father of Ruachoth, of spirits, right? So just want to point that out. Now, you wanted me to read uh, Genesis 1, uh, the, what, the last in Vulgate. Which one um, do you want me to read? Let's just do the NESB and then skip down to the NETS Septuagint. Okay, there we go. Beersheath, uh, or Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, Elohim created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Ruach of Elohim was moving over the surface of the waters. And then Elohim said, Let there be light, and there was light. That comes from the NASB 1995. And then jumping down to the, uh, I get, I'm suppose, uh, suppose uh, NETS Septuagint. Okay. Genesis 1 1. In the beginning, Elohim made the sky and the earth, yet the earth was invisible and unformed, and darkness was over the abyss. And a divine wind was being carried along over the water. And Elohim said, let light come into being, and light came into being. And that has a whole different ring to it. Um, and before we elaborate too much, um, I don't know if you guys can see on the top of page 16, um, I have a picture out of uh, the Scripture for All Interlinear Bible. Um, and it, it's basically a word for word. Um, it says, and he is saying, Elohim, he shall become light, and he is becoming light. Uh, and he is seeing Elohim, the light, the good, he is separating uh, Elohim between. And so it's sort of hidden in the text, but this is actually um, Yeshua's creation. Um, he was the firstborn in Scripture, you know, a lot of people will start asking me questions, and they're like, well, doesn't Scripture say he's the firstborn of all creation? Yeah, he's the very first thing that was made in the creation story. Like, literally, 
And then they'll say, well, I thought everything was made through him. Yes. I mean, that doesn't include himself. Um, and Ruach HaKodesh is a whole other story. I, I won't get on that rabbit trail. But uh, after Yeshua was made as the first work of creation, um, everything was made through him. And so people are surprised that I actually agree with them that everything was created through him and that he was the firstborn of creation. Um, but these things fit seamlessly together. They don't uh, go against each other. Um, and so before we look into this farther, I want to look at these two verses side by side. Um, Genesis 1-3. Um, I'll just read these real quick here. And look at how similar these are. Genesis 1-3 from the Septuagint. And God said, let light come into being, and light came into being. And then John 1-3 from the NRSV. All things came into being through him, and without him not one thing uh, came into being. What has come into being in him was life, and the life was the light of all people. And through John chapter 1, he goes on countless times to say he is the true light. He is the light of the world. He is uh, the light for every man. And literally, um, this was the first act of creation. And we don't need to read this first, but in Genesis 1.14, it talks about the sun and the moon being created in day four. So if the sun and the moon were created in day four, who was the light in Genesis 1.3? I'll let you respond to that, Noah, if you have some comments. Well, obviously, I mean, the light was uh, was Yahusha. And that that's one of the kind of fill in the blank issues because it, you talk to Christianity. I was, I grew up in a evangelical world, young earth creationism. And you know, the, the evolutionists would mock this saying like, what was, you know, what was the light without the sun? And you say, well, Jesus was right. Uh, he is the light. And, um, but to take it to the next obvious step and say, the light came into being, um, you know, all of a sudden you'd back up and go, no, 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 it can't possibly be saying that, right? So, um, and I've, I've tossed this back and forth myself, but um, there's some, the passages uh, that he shows coming up here that really um, seems to exemplify the idea that Yahushua was the, uh, the firstborn, um, you know, in the creation story, so. Yeah, and I'll read this uh, last quote. Um at the very end of example two before number three. Um, now, when I'm reading uh, the writings of Origen, written in around the year 250, this is before all the Trinitarian debates, so nothing was modified to conceal Yeshua's birth at this time. Um, and so in the bold there, it says, And God said, Let light come to be, and light was produced. Um, and so, again, Origen, who wrote before the council, um, that's how he's quoting um, Genesis. Um, now, here's the next one in example three. And I want to let you guys know, when I, I used to believe in the Trinity, um, when I uh, came to the faith and I used to teach it. And so um, whenever I would teach it, I would go to John chapter one, in the beginning was the word because I felt that was the best argument for the doctrine. Um, now, we're looking at two verses right here back to back in John chapter 1 that were modified, and there's another one later on. So there's actually three 
modified verses or translated improperly verses in John chapter 1 alone for the Trinity. And so once you read John chapter 1 the way it was originally written, it, it sort of removes the doctrine by itself. You don't have to do any work to do it. It, it, it takes care of it. Um, so yeah, if you want to read uh, John 1 there, Noel. John one eighteen. Yeah. According to the according to the KJV, no man hath seen Elohim at any time, the only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. And then the NASB nineteen ninety five, no one has seen Elohim at any time, the only begotten Elohim who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. And that's a subtle change there, and. I will agree with the fact people will ask me, what is wrong with the King James Version? And the verse itself is a true statement, but it's not what was originally written. And there's a big difference between um, an only begotten son and an only begotten God um, or Elohim. And this goes back to um, you know, seminaries will teach you that. Um, Christianity is monotheistic, and we're uh, taught to have one God. Well, in John 1, it's saying that Yeshua was a begotten or created Elohim or God, and which being a second one. And then when you factor in uh, Ruach HaKodesh, which we're not going to get into that tonight, or else we'll never get done, um, there are multiple um, gods with Yahweh being uh, the head people will try to use the term monotheistic to place fear in you and say well uh, all these other religions you know they are they believe in many gods so what sets us apart um, Yahweh is what sets us apart still he is the God and he had a son who it says here was the only begotten God um, now, the again here, the Nestle Allen's 28th edition, the go-to text for all these translations, has it in here, as do all of the old manuscripts have the only begotten God uh, outside of maybe one. But as far as percentage-wise, um, hands down, they agree with only begotten God. And that changes things, and it sort of puts uh, a little bit of a, um, it, it comes against the doctrine of the Trinity. So. Trinitarians don't like to read this verse this way. And I will say um, the NASB 95, because it was such a strict word-for-word -word translation that most of the time um, translated off the Nestle Allen's 28th edition, um, they caught some flack for it because it went against the Trinitarian doctrine. And so in this verse here, they changed it for their 2020 edition to only begotten son. So if you read the 2020 version, this verse will read the same as the King James. Um, another thing they did in the 2020 edition was remove every instance of the word begotten. So if it would say only begotten son, it now in the new NESB just says the only son. Because begotten actually means to be made or to have a son or a daughter. And it's, it's too hard for the Trinitarians to get around. So... Some of these new texts coming up may start removing this word. Any comments on that one, Noel? 
Well, just I've been reading the King James version over and over again, and if if anyone is to translate this that the only begotten Son is the Father, then the verse cancels itself out because it says, "No man hath seen Elohim at any time." But you can't say that if Yahushua the Son is the Father, right? That would cancel itself out. Yeah. It makes it makes so much sense that he has explained him, which is exactly what Yahushua said later on. He said. I, I have done nothing nor said anything that I have not personally observed or heard or learned from the Father, right? You guys haven't seen him. I've been in his presence. I've seen him. Um, and that makes so much more clear sense than than what, you know, is what we are sub, uh, expected to read in that. Yeah. And this goes back to another point. Because the doctrine of the Trinity, when you really start to discuss it, does not make sense. I'm sure many of you guys have heard this before. Uh, people will often go back to the old go-to. Because God's mind is bigger than our mind, we cannot understand the doctrine of the Trinity. And what I say now is, that's not in Scripture. You just That's just a phrase that Trinitarians use to place fear in someone who comes against their doctrine. Um, you know, if I was to tell someone, hey, the demons are the good guys, um, God's mind is bigger than our mind. That's why we can't understand it. You would not believe me. You would say, prove it from Scripture. And so that's what I say to the Trinitarians. You cannot give me that excuse. You have to prove it from Scripture and a non-modified Scripture, by the way. Yeah, there was a similar incident happened to us. And uh, my wife, one of her longtime girlfriends, when she found out that we were not, quote unquote, Trinitarians, it freaked her out. She thought, you know, we left the faith, all this kind of stuff. So she she asked, hey, can I send you a book that will convince you that the Trinity is legit? And my wife agreed. She's like, sure. She sent it out. And uh, no, I myself did not read this book. So I'm perhaps speaking out of a little bit of arrogance. But my wife did read it. She gave me the book report. And it was essentially the same thing. The whole argument that was being presented was uh, he is so much smarter than us. We're stupid. So if uh, we clearly could not understand it, so stop trying to understand it. Just just believe that it is true that it's a test of the faith and um and the fact that we don't understand again it's like circular it it proves that it must be real because he's so yep. smart so it's it's all circular yeah and it's kind of sad that that is their go-to argument um once you get so far if you know the right questions to ask um there's nowhere else to go and so that's where they end up at is that um, I did put a verse at the end of this year, um, which I know in one of my books, I document every time that Yeshua called uh, the Father his God or his Elohim. Um, in John 20, 17, uh, it says, Jesus said to her, stop clinging, clinging to me, um, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend to my Father and your Father, my God and your God. Um, and so. Yeshua is very clear there. He's not just ascending to the Father. He's ascending to his God or his Elohim. And just that thought alone uh, just confuses a Trinitarian. But there is a lot of scripture evidence on that one topic, which I don't want to, we don't need to get into that tonight. But just know that there's more. If you start researching that, there's more out there. Do you have anything else on that one, Noel? No, I think we covered that. That was good. Or you covered that really well. 
All right, um, for sake of time, um, on the next one, let's do the NESB, and then let's skip down to the Brenton Septuagint. Okay, so this is the uh, the Trinitarians, example four, the Trinitarians erase Yeshua's heavenly birth. This is the uh, Psalms 110.1 in the NASB 1995. Now, you guys know that I don't usually like to say the Lord, but I'm just going to say it here for the sake of this uh, verse. The Lord says to my Lord, set up my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Uh, Yahuwah will stretch out your strong scepter from Zion, saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will volunteer freely on the day of your power in holy splendor. From the womb of the dawn, your youth are to you as the dew. Uh, Yahuwah has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Mekilzedek. And then you wanted me to read the Brenton Septuagint, I believe, correct? Psalm, yeah. Psalm 1091, again, in the Septuagint. Yahuwah said to, or the Lord said to my Lord, uh, sit thou on my right hand. I should say, I guess, Yahuwah said to my Adonai, sit on my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. Yahuwah shall send out a rod of power for thee out of Sion. Rule thou in the midst of thine enemies. With thee is dominion in the day of thy power and the splendors of thy saints. I have begotten thee from the womb before the morning. Man, this really excited me when I read this. Uh, I'll just say this one more time. I have begotten thee from the womb before the morning. Yahuwah swear and will not repent. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Mekilzedek. Yeah, that is powerful. I could feel that as you... As you read that, I mean, it, there's some some weight to that verse. Um, if you look in the bold, can you see how those are almost unrecognizable to each other? Uh, as far as the womb of the dawn, your youth are to you as the dew, and then, you know, I've begotten thee. Do you see how those are like completely, utterly changed? Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, and again, this goes back to the, the 350 AD manuscript in the Greek um, has the correct version. And all of the church fathers, they quoted this over and over and over. This verse shows up in Origen's writings, Eusebius's writings. They even talked about this verse in the documentation of the Council of Nicaea. Um, so they eventually they had to change it because it, it talked about his birth too clearly. Uh, now, one thing I want to highlight here, it says, I have begotten thee from the womb, before the morning. And this kind of brings together the verses that we've just been reading, um, where it says that uh, uh, God said, let light come into being in Genesis 1-3. Um, now, at the end of the first day, what does it say? There was evening and there was morning the first day. So Yeshua was before the first morning. So that's why it says, I begotten thee from the womb before the morning. But because of our Trinitarian doctrines, we miss uh, these things today. So when you really look at Genesis chapter 1, you have the Father in verse 1. You have Ruach HaKodesh in verse 2 before creation. This was, And then you have Yeshua in verse 3. Um, so you have the... Um, the nuclear family in heaven um, in the first three verses written perfectly 
um, in Genesis, you know, chapter one, which is amazing to me. Um, you know, in the scripture in the you know, Proverbs eight, it says that Ruach Hakodesh was created before um, before time began. Is I think how the Breton is worded. And so, as you read things, certain things happen before time began, and Yeshua indeed was the first creation when time began. So you have to put a distinction in there between the two, um, and it's really cool when it all comes together. Um, I don't know if you have anything else to add to that, Noel. Well, the, the one thing I did want to throw in that I think I uh, messed with John, and I would I thought about this when I was reading your article, and I used to always get a little bit of frustrated because John, the, the book of John and John himself was my favorite New Testament writer. He always has been. I really like his book. And, you know, you read through Matthew and Luke and there's the nativity story. And I was always like, man, John, why don't you include a nativity story? But he actually did. That's kind of the yeah. exciting thing that he actually, he, he writes about his, his heavenly nativity. And uh, it's a shame that that is completely missed in the church. Yeah, that's a good point, and and what all of the uh, the old writers knew that sometimes we miss today, when John said in the beginning, he was really saying, "Look, guys, here's a secret. When I'm saying in the beginning, I am referencing you guys to go to Genesis chapter one in the Torah because this has to do with that, uh, because I am talking about the light of the world, the light for every man, and it, it's just neat to put it all." together so all right we'll go on to the next one here and um let's see i'll just have you do um the nasb the first one there and then we'll go um towards the end and we'll do the latin ballgate one there we on example five uh yeah example five this uh, is example this is example five. The Trinitarians erase Yeshua's heavenly birth. Psalms 45, 1 in the NASB 1995 it says, My heart overflows with a good theme. Your throne, O Elohim, is forever and ever a scepter of uprightness and the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, Elohim, your Elohim has anointed you with oil of joy or with the oil of joy above your fellows did you want me to read the next one the thompson septuagint um let's just go to uh the latin vulgate there on uh, page 18 at the top all right latin vulgate psalms 44 2 my heart hath uttered a good word thy throne o elohim is forever and ever the scepter of thy kingdom is a scepter of uprightness thou hast loved justice and hated iniquity Therefore, Elohim, thy Elohim, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. That's the Latin Vulgate. Um, and then I'll, on this passage, this is another time where um, even though the oldest manuscripts talk about Yeshua's creation here, even the translators of the Septuagint veer off a little bit to, uh, to conceal it in this case. Um, the ABP... Um, Septuagint, um, in the very start there, it says, discharged forth my heart, um, word of good. Um, it's kind of a weird word order, but it's talking about his creation. Um, 
Now I'm going to skip down here uh, to Origen's commentary in the Gospel of John, written in 233 AD, um, about 100 years before the Council of Nicaea. Um, the passage they employ most is that in the Psalms, my heart hath produced a good word. And so it's even a little bit hard to see in some of the Septuagint, although it, it is there um, in the, uh, the Hebrew, it's uh, completely gone. Um, now, I do want to clarify here, probably most of the listen, listeners here know that in John chapter 1, when it says, in the beginning was the word, that Greek word was logos. You're probably familiar with that, right, Noel? Yes. Um, and the word used here in the Septuagint is logos. So when it says, my heart hath uttered a good word, the, the actual Greek is, my heart hath uttered a good logos. And in the Council of Nicaea, they actually used this word to argue back and forth over Yeshua's creation. And that's how I ended up finding it through some of the uh, research of the arguments. Um, so I don't know if you have anything else with that, but that is um, another big one. And that's the last one on Yeshua's creation there. No, I don't have anything to add. That was really good stuff. All right. So the this last one here, um, most of these in this last one are are not a uh, a manuscript corruption. They're not something that was modified in the Greek or Hebrew manuscripts, but they're something that was translated wrong to incorporate doctrines. So even some of these people, the translation committees that do the Bibles today, they want to keep their pet doctrines, and so they will mistranslate um, certain things. Um, I'll have you read uh, this first one here is the the third. Uh, change in John chapter 1 uh, to help with the Trinity Doctrine. Um, you can just do the NASB and then the Jubilee Bible below it there. All right, John 1.1. 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, NASB 1995. And then the JUB, the Jubilees, says in John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with the God. And the word was God. The same was in the beginning with the God. Now, this is a very subtle difference here. And on a first look, it looks like they read almost the same. Um, however, in the uh, Greek text, um, it has the uh, indefinite article in front of um, every instance of the word and then God. Except for, if you notice when it says the word was God. It does not say the word was the God or Yahweh. It just says the word was God. And this is actually a, uh, a well-known thing. If you start looking things up on it, um, the, the word they use for the or the, the uh, uh, definite article is Strong's word G3588. Um, H-O is how it's um, pronounced in the, uh, in, in the English. Um, transliteration. But that if you look into the Strong's, the G3588 is before every time of the word God and word, except for um, the word was God, meaning that John was actually differentiating a difference in authority between the Father and the Son. And it's sort of 
hidden in the text because we mistranslate it that way on purpose. Um, and a lot of these old writers knew about this. Um, I'm going to read Origen's commentary on the Gospel of John, written in about 233 AD. We notice John's use of the article in these sentences. He does not write without care in this respect, nor is he unfamiliar with the nice niceties of the Greek tongue. In some cases, he uses the article, and in some he omits it. He adds the article to the logos, but to the name God, he adds it sometimes only. He uses the article when the name of God refers to the uncreated cause of all things and omits it when the logos is named God. Um, and so, and then below, I have a couple of quotes from Origen um, where he quotes it, in the beginning was the logos and the logos was near God and the logos was a God. Um, and so it might seem like a subtle change, but again, that is the Trinitarian's number one verse to say that they are the same being or the same essence. And when you actually look at it closer, it John differentiates between them and talks about Yeshua's creation. So I don't know if you have anything else on that, Noel. No, uh, not at all. I think you covered that. All right. Um, we'll go on to the next one there. Um, example number two. All right. Would you like me to read from Philippians? Uh, yes. Uh, both of those uh, there. All right. Philippians 2, 6 from the KJV. It says, who being in the form of Elohim thought it not robbery to be equal with Elohim. <laughs> Ouch. You have to read that a few times. But, uh, mm -hmm. but but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And then the NASB 1995. Um, uh, Yeshua thought it was not robbery to be equal with Yahweh. Um, the NASB and most other, well, this is this one's kind of divided between translations. But the NASB said that Yeshua did not regard equality with Yahweh, equality with Yahweh a thing to be grasped. 100% um, opposite things. And you can tell it's for a Trinitarian motive again, um, showing them to be equal or near equal. It's almost, so, I, I don't know if, I don't know if it's like projecting, but it's, it's thought like, if Yahusha is not the father, and he is equal with the Father, Trinitarian, that he is robbing from the Father, right? And it's almost yeah. like the, the translator is like stating that in advance, like, no, it's not robbery to say that he's equal with the Father, and um, when, in fact, it is. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point, because it, really they're spelling out the, the main heresy um, that's happening through their mistranslation uh, of the verse like I say, a lot of times a liar is is caught out. You you can find him or almost smell him. All right, we can go on to um, example three here. If you want to read uh, those two. All right, this uh the translators modify the biblical manuscripts to fit their doctrines, uh, which kind of sums up what we've been talking about tonight. Revelation 3.14 from the NIV 2011 says, To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of Elohim's creation. 
And then uh, the NASB 1995 says, uh, same passage, to the angel of the Church of Laodicea, right? The Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of Elohim. Say this. Wow, that really hit me hard when I read that. Yeah. Yeah, it's crazy. Um, the Greek, again, is very similar in that. Um, some of the translations will translate it differently on purpose. Um, but this, again, goes right along with uh, let there be light. Um, if you talk about the creation story in the beginning, Yahweh's first words were let light come into being. And so Yeshua was indeed the beginning of the creation of God. But these things are hidden from us, but they're sort of hidden in plain sight. They're, it's all in the text. Almost gave me, I don't know if chills is the right word, because um, that sounds negative. But it, that this is Yahushua himself saying this, that, you know, yeah. tell... Tell the angel of this church in Laodicea that the beginning of the creation of Elohim is speaking yeah. to you. Like that, that's really cool. Yeah, that's the title he's given himself um, as this exalted title. And we think in our own minds, we think that title's not good enough for him because he is the same being as Yahweh, is what Trinitarians say. And so therefore he was never created where he is excited about his creation. It it's so crazy. We, we Trinitarians think they're doing him a service. I, I do want to clarify that I don't believe Trinitarians are, at least most of them, are not trying to harm Yeshua. They just don't know any better. Um, so I, most of the time, I don't believe it's with a bad motive. Um, in some cases, like changing the text, that would be a bad motive there. Yeah, I, I agree with those sentiments, yeah. I, you know, uh, the father knows our hearts and I've said this many times before that just because we've been lied to, um, and so we believe something that is false, we have a false premise on things. Ultimately, the father knows our hearts. He knows the core of our hearts. And while yeah. it is important, while it is important that we line ourselves up with the truth, and that's why we are all here, we are all seeking the truth. Um, and I'm not saying that it's not important to line ourselves up with the truth. It is. But ultimately, um, you know, he, he's going to search our hearts in the end. And, and many people who, if we're just coming with this like Gnostic type of view of just, you know, we're, we're supposed to just know the truth and that's all that's important. Um, a lot of us are going to be quite stunned and surprised in the end when we're like, how is it that we were 99.9% .9 right on all these bullet points, but we're still not entering the kingdom? Oh, because we didn't have the right heart. So I, I do want to yeah. throw that out there. Yeah, and again, these things are not a salvation issue. Um, whether you believe or don't believe in the Trinity, um, if, if you follow Yeshua as your Savior, um, you can go to heaven. Um, so I don't want to, you know, I, I'm not coming at this from an evil heart saying you guys are condemned because that's not, that's not my heart. Um, for this next one, Noel, I'll probably just read a couple bullet points because this one is kind of a lengthy discussion just for the sake of time. Um, if you guys go down to example four, uh, I'm just going to look um, that first one there, the NESB, uh, that bold section at the towards the bottom of the verse, be in verse six. It says, is it too small a thing that you should be my servant? Um, now, that's what the Hebrew says in the NESB. 
Um, now, if we go down to the Brenton Septuagint, Isaiah 49, 6, that bold towards the end there, um, it says, and he said to me, um, a great thing for thee to be called my servant. Now, you have to go into a study of uh, the Strong's and look at the, the words, but that is an improper translation there. The Greek does not say servant there. Um, and why is that important? Um, they mistranslated even the Septuagint because it goes against doctrine. Um, I want you to flip to page 21 and look at a literal translation of the Codex Vaticanus. Um, and it says, and he said to me, it is a great thing for you to be called my child. Now, that might sound like just a minor change. Servant and child aren't necessarily the same thing. And, you know, this was spoken well before he was a child from Mary. Um, and there's some apocrypha verses, too, talking about Yeshua being a, uh, a man of young stature, growing up in heaven. And so I don't think too many of the Bible scholars want this verse in the Bible. Um, is it a great thing for you to be called my child? Because that makes him seem smaller, lesser. Um, and like I say, this um, was written well before um, the Gospels. And if you look at the Strong's for the Septuagint, um, this word um, should have been translated as child. Um, so I'll probably just leave it at that. But uh, uh, And actually, Jerome quotes it in the year 408, approximately. And he quotes it this way. The child of the Lord is the one to whom the Father spoke in Isaiah. Is, is it a great thing for you to be called my child? And elsewhere, behold, my child whom I have chosen my beloved in whom my soul delights. And even that second one, um, Isaiah 42, 1, uh, no one will translate that one correctly either. Um, so I'll probably just leave it at that. I don't know if you have anything on that one, Noel. Uh, no, you, I don't. All right. Um, the example number five, the last one on this section here. We're just about ready to wrap up. You're going to read those two. The translators modify the biblical manuscripts to fit their doctrines, which, again, is a consistent theme tonight. And uh, we see Colossians 2.9 in the KJV. It says, for in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. The NASB states, uh, for in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And so, again, a big difference there. Now, the uh, King James, New King James, is one of the only translations to use the word Godhead, and that is a Trinitarian uh, word. It, it was never in the Greek, never intended to be in the Bible, for that matter. Now, the Strong's Concordance is even a part of this. Um, you know, the King James was, was originally written in 1611. Um, the Strong's Concordance came out. Um, I think it was at least 100 years later. I'd have to look it up. I don't want to give the wrong date. But it was actually made as a companion to the 1611 King James Bible and actually incorporated some of the King James definitions uh, like the word Godhead in there. That It's not actually 
that word wasn't invented until well after the Council of Nicaea. It was not in anyone's language um, at the time that, that those were written. Um, and the word deity, if you look it up in almost all instances, it is the act of being a god or the act of being uh, an Elohim. And so Trinitarians will most commonly come against people that don't believe their way and say, you are trying to remove the deity of Yeshua. But they haven't actually looked up the definition because uh, the definition just means the state of being an Elohim. And so obviously we are not saying that he is not an Elohim. We're just saying that he is not Yahweh. He is Yahweh's son who was created by him. And Yahweh has the authority. He is over um, Ruach HaKodesh and he is over um, Yeshua. And um, we uh, might as well read um, the bonus one is pretty neat, or the, the couple bonus ones, if we can read those real quick. Um, I'll have you read the NESB and then the NETS for the bonus number one. Okay, and let me just, uh, I was going to add to your last point that, um, you know, when people start freaking out over, uh, one of the, I think the, uh, the lies, well, I know this is a lie that is put forward that I grew up with, is I was taught that Abraham invented monotheism and that the Bible is a monotheistic book and that there is only one God, or you could say Elohim, and there are no none others. And I've said this to my group many times, uh, but I'll just go ahead and say this here, that that is not true. There are many Elohim in Scripture. And, uh, you know, I could... One of the people that um, was greatly influential in unlocking that for me was uh, Michael Heiser. He's very popular in evangelical teachings now. Uh, he, I don't think he'll touch the Trinita uh, Trinitarian uh, discussion. I don't think he does. Maybe he has. Uh, but um, it is, you know, obviously, uh, just to add to that, you know, Yahusha is, he's still Elohim, but he is not, not the Most High. He is not the Father, right? Okay, so... Uh, now, you wanted me to read Ezekiel and the NASB, correct? And the NETS. And the NETS. All right, here we go. Ezekiel 17.22, thus says Yahuwah Elohim, I will also take a sprig from the lofty top of the cedar and set it out. I will pluck from the topmost of its young twigs a tender one, and I will plant it on a high and lofty mountain. On the high mountain of Yasharel, I will plant it that it may bring forth boughs of bear fruits and bear fruits and become a stately cedar and birds of every kind will nest under it. They will nest in the shades of its branches. That comes from the NASB 1995. Turning the page, as you can hear, I have physical pages in front of me that I've been reading from uh, Ezekiel 17:22 from the Septuagint. Therefore, this is what Yahuwah says. And it is I who will take some from the select parts of the cedar I will snip off something from the top of their heart, and it is I who will transplant on a high mountain, and I will hang him in a mountain of Yashril high in the air, and I will transplant him, and he shall produce a shoot and bear fruits and become a large cedar, and every animal shall rest under him, and every winged creature shall rest under his shade, and his shoots shall be restored. And there is some weight on that verse. I, 
I can just uh, feel um, I can just feel Yahweh's presence on that one. Um, this one here also, it, it seems like the Masoretes um, wanted to hide uh, Yeshua's death on the cross. Obviously, they knew that there was a, a man named Yeshua who died on a cross, um, and they were the, the Orthodox or the ones that crucified him. So in the, the Hebrew translation, um, it just says, uh, and you can kind of pick it out of here if you read it really closely. On a high mountain of Israel, I will plant it that it may bring forth bows and bear fruit and become a stately cedar. But it's pretty hidden. And so when you look at the NETS um, Septuagint, uh, it really clarifies. It says, I will hang him. Uh, I will hang him in a mountain of Israel high in the air. So it's high for everyone to see. The Orthodox Jews, the Gentiles, everyone will see him because he is uh, placed high in the air. Uh, and it says, um, I will transplant him and he shall produce a shoot and bear fruit and become a large cedar. And that reminds me of Isaiah 11.2, um, talking about a shoot coming out of the stump of Jesse. Um, and so, uh, again, when you start looking at the oldest translations, there is some beauty there, and you know this one they tried to remove a prophecy of uh, Yeshua's death. All right. Um, if you don't have anything, we'll just read that last verse there. Uh, which are we in John three sixteen? Uh, yeah, bonus number two. Sorry. All right, John three sixteen from the NAS. For Elohim so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And then the NASB 2020, so same source, five years apart. For Elohim so loved the world that he gave his only son, so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. If anyone uh, missed that, it, they dropped the begotten from only son. Yeah, and they did that in every single instance for their 2020. Um, I believe they they caught some grief because their 95 edition went against the doctrine pretty strongly. Um, now, it's kind of funny. It's almost a little bit laughable, but if you look through history in the Council of Nicaea, um, and a lot of people think the Nicene Creed we have today was written in 325. They actually rewrote it in 381 at the Council of Constantinople. Um, the, the, the Nicene Council, all they declared there was the Father and the Son were the same being. And then in the 381 Council of Constantinople, they threw Ruach HaKodesh into the mix and said all three of them are the same being. Um, that being said, in the Creed, I don't know if you rem remember the term, uh, it says begotten, not made. And so literally, if you look up the Strong's, the word begotten means to have a son or a daughter, uh, to be made, to be created. And so it's almost laughable, but when you talk to Trinitarians, they'll say Yeshua was begotten, not made. And if you look up the definition, it, it doesn't even make sense. So um, it's kind of crazy. And I don't need to read the closing there. I think I've probably said everything along the way. But I do want to read that verse in Hebrews uh, 2.10. 
because Yeshua was created by the Father, that's why we are his brothers. Yeshua is never called our Father. So Hebrews 2.10, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through suffering as part of his plan to glorify many children. Because both the one who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified all have the same Father. That is why uh, Yeshua is not ashamed to call them brothers when he says, I will announce your name to my brothers and I will praise you within the congregation. Um, and if you don't have anything, I'd like to say a quick prayer to you, Noel. Uh, well, yeah, I just, uh, you close us with prayer. I just wanted to thank you for coming on, Jason. And it was, I know everybody here really enjoyed this. They were um, like, you know, hinged to your words. And uh, this will be a great resource, of course, online as well afterwards. And so thank you for coming, putting in the time to this. Uh, I know it took you quite a few days to write this uh article presentation and i hope you'll contribute more to the unexpected cosmology because everything you've done this is a your i guess technically your third presentation uh though the last one that we did it over two weeks and i didn't want to break this one up so uh just thank you for doing it again and hope you can do it again and uh close this out yeah you know, i want to say thank you i appreciate um you let me come on here and and speak and i you know it's an honor and um, you guys have the document. Feel free to use it as needed. I, um, it's all for, for his glory. I, um, I don't need anything as far as for my personal self. Um, but, and I do have um, some stuff at the end there. If you guys have more questions, um, I do have some uh, books you can find on Amazon if, if you need to, to read farther up on it. Um, but uh, Yahweh. Um, I just want to pray for everyone uh, that heard this message. Um, I just ask uh, Ruach HaKodesh that you would move, um, you would calm uh, hearts and minds. Um, I know that sometimes messages like this can bring uh, fear and worry uh, upon people that uh, would believe a different way. Um, and, and I even pray that... Uh, um, you would help people to to study these things out uh, in the Word. Um, obviously, if they go to their pastor, they are going to immediately rebuke them for learning these things. So I pray that you would uh, encourage each one here to study, to show themselves approved, to to see if what I've spoken is truth or a lie. And and I even ask Ruach Hakodesh that if I have spoken anything out of turn or incorrectly, that you would highlight this to all who are listening. And if I have spoken truth, that you would also highlight this to those who are listening. Um, so I just ask um, the presence uh, of Yahweh would be upon um, all here. And and I just pray for uh, grace um, if I've spoken out of turn in any way. Uh, I ask these things in Yeshua's name. Amen. Again, or uh, indeed. <laughs> Indeed. Once again, thank you, Jason. And I don't know how long you're able to stick on, but does anybody have any questions for Jason? You guys have all been, you know, quiet. There's been a lot of chatter, of course, in the general voice chat, and um, I've kind of commented on a few of them through this. But does anyone have anything you'd like to ask now or forever 
uh, hold your, well, I say forever hold your peace. He's here like almost every day in our Discord uh, <laughs> community. But uh, does anyone have anything for him right now? I have a question, but I just want to get in queue and I'll put my question for later. Well, why not okay. just ask it now? Okay, good. I, uh, it, while you were speaking, you know, sometimes uh, things get confirmed um, in your discernment. And I've always thought on these same lines, even while still holding a uh, church-taught Trinitarian um, uh, ideology, but when you were discussing the uh, uh, Yeshua being born, I had this um, almost like a vision, or I envisioned that he was brought forth and emanated out of the Father. But one thing that I've been struggling and grappling with all along was the entire theme of the serpent seed and the jealousy of uh Hasatan, where he wanted to be like the most high. So when you said he um Yeshua did not think it robbery or something to be held onto to be equal, he was not concerned with keeping his place or being like the most high, but sacrificed in order for us all to uh be recovered from this um feud in heaven as it were does any of that make sense or does anybody see or yeah. can uh, add to any of that yeah for sure um i mean obviously everyone in heaven uh would have would have seen what happened to to satan um as that uh took place and he took his fall and so um as you read through the gospels um especially with your eyes open Whenever Yeshua speaks of the Father, he is given him honor, glory. Everything he does is because he sees his Father do. Um, you know, John 14, I, I go to the Father for the Father is greater than I. Um, John chapter 3 in the letters to the churches, I think five times in there, he calls the Father his God. Um, and so it's really neat. And one thing I'll add in there, too, um, as far as Yeshua's creation, um, with uh, and even with Ruach Hakodesh, everything that happened in heaven was mirrored on the earth. And so, uh, in Genesis, you had Adam, and then you had uh, his rib being taken out and making Eve uh, as his wife. And so, before creation, before time began, um, prophetically, you had Yahweh um, taking out a rib prophetically. Um, in putting life in his wisdom and creating a wife for himself. Um, and then you have, you know, just like um, Adam and Eve um, came together and brought forth the son, um, Ruach and Yahweh came together and brought forth Yeshua. And uh, the womb that that happened in was the water, uh, and that's why Ruach was hovering over the waters in Genesis 1-2. Um, and, you know, the Father said, let light come into being, and Yeshua came into being. And so they both 
together created Yeshua. Um, and then I know um, if Rob or Michael's on here, they will have this verse. Um, it's in uh, Luke, but it, it's, it talks about um, both uh, the Spirit and the Father coming upon Mary um, to produce um, Yeshua in her virgin womb. Uh, so it doesn't just talk about the Spirit. It says uh, uh, the Spirit and the Father produced Yeshua in her womb, um, which is so neat that the second time they worked together, um, first to create him in the heavens, but then when he came to the earth as a man to die, they again um, collaborated together on that. Um, and so in John chapter 1, when you really break it down, technically you could say Yeshua always existed, but you have to listen closely to what I'm saying. Um, it says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was a God. Um, and then it says, what came into being in him was life. So just like Eve always existed, but until her rib was taken out, she didn't come another living being. And so the Father, in John 1, verses 3 to 4, he placed life in his word, and that is when the word became a life, or I believe inherited the name in Yeshua, uh, Yeshua at that time. Um, and so it's just a really neat way how it all flows together. Uh, and what I just said for the last five minutes would be one of the most heretical things uh, ever spoken in a mainstream church, but um, I believe it to be 100% truth. Um, so I don't want to be. Uh, you know, I don't want to be embarrassed to say the truth. Jason, you had mentioned earlier in the night, and it, it was such a quick comment, it, it probably slipped by. And I, I'm wondering if you could elaborate more on the idea of baptism, of saying the name of Yahusha. And you said, uh, you didn't just say that the waters were energized, uh, but you, you said something about the teachings of the, the church fathers on that, if I'm not mistaken. And I'm wondering if you can elaborate on that. Yeah. Um, when you look in um, the early church fathers' writings, um, because they talked and they esteemed baptism very, very highly, um, and they they taught that when you said the name, that name, the power of that name came into the water. Um, and so my fear is today, Again, I'm not saying that you're not saved. So if, if somebody's listening that was baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, I'm not saying that you don't have salvation. So don't hear me wrong. But when you say the Son, you're no longer saying his name. And so, um, in fact, you know, you're saying uh, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So the only real name you're giving there is the Holy Spirit. But when you read the text carefully, all the baptismal texts say, baptize in the name of Yeshua, and then Rock HaKodesh will come upon you. So you have to be baptized in Yeshua first. Um, and so even um, the name Jesus, and again, I'm not trying to go too far. If you're baptized in Jesus' name, you are 100% good to go. But um, Jesus is not his real, his given Hebrew name. And so if you use 
um, the name Yeshua, which is his Hebrew name, um, that his power comes literally into the water is what they believed. And so you were dunked into his power. And then coming up, Ruach HaKodesh um, came upon you. I don't know if that helped, Noel. Yeah, that was good. I, I would... Um... I would I would love to see and you don't have to share it now if you don't have it you probably don't have those notes in front of you uh, but I would love to see sources on you know who is saying that specifically because that you know I find that fascinating was it origin was it uh, Eusebius uh, who was talking about the energized power of the water um, if my memory serves me correctly and I can try to find it for you um, I was actually looking through um, old Christian um, dictionaries on the words uh, in the word baptism. And I think uh, Hastings um, Bible Dictionary, and it probably goes back to the 800s, um, they had a long write-up, many pages long, on uh, baptism. And it was written in there that that is what a lot of the, um, the people believed back in the day. Um, I don't think it elaborates a lot on it, so I, I don't want to make it more than what it was. But um, it definitely hit me when I read it. Um, so if I uh, if I come across it, I can definitely uh, send it to you for sure. Oh yeah, thank you. Appreciate that. Mm -hmm. So does anyone else have any questions for Jason? I do. I I heard two there. I heard, I saw Nikki, and then I think prolific. Nikki, do you want to go first? Sure. Um. So about you know you saying it's not a salvation issue which I understand the heart thing, but with, with it being such a big thing in the church. And so if you don't accept, if you think one is the other, aren't you denying one of them? Like if you think the father is the son or the son's the father, aren't you in reality denying the son's existence? I mean, I, um, can... I don't know if if I could say denying his existence. Definitely confused. Um, definitely not the right. Um, they definitely don't know exactly who Yeshua is. Um, I guess here's where I'm at on it. Um, I used to believe that way, and I, I was taught that way. I'm sure many of you guys were when you came into the faith. Um, and I guarantee you, when when I go to heaven. Um, I'm not going to have everything right. And uh, the father's going to say, you had these things right and you messed up on these things. And so I try to be very cautious and not say, because if people don't do um, some major study and some major digging, they will believe in the Trinity. And it's not out of a bad heart or bad motive. And it all comes down to um, Yeshua being the only way to the father that in my personal opinion, as long as they believe in Yeshua as the way to the Father and live accordingly, um, they can have eternal life. Um, so I try to be real cautious on that. Uh, that might not be everybody's opinion, but... Um, right now, what, what, what Jason just said, uh, if you were in certain denominations, that would turn the eyes upon him not in a good way. Like, you, you would feel the, the, the eyes turning because... And I grew up in a lot of Baptist denominations, and the Baptist church is very big on you get these bullet points down. 
you know, you, you, you learn these and you believe in these bullet points we're teaching and then you're good to go. And, um, you know, and if you don't agree to it, then it's like, oh, what are they teaching, you know, in church nowadays, right? So it's all about the belief, right? So if I were to go in there to a church, and I agree with Jason, because I've said before, if I make it into the kingdom, I'm going to be like on my face, like on the ground, exhausted, like I can't believe I'm in, I made it past the gate. And I'm just going to lay there for like 20, 30 years until one of you come, comes along and gives me a beer and be like, okay, dude, you can get up and you know have a drink with us now, right? And and the thing is, though, is that that goes beyond the culture of some of these belief systems of, you know, you have to, you know, you believe, you know, in the Trinity, you believe, blah, 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 you just fill in the blanks. Uh, you know, you did nothing to attain yourself, nothing. It was all by Jesus. He did everything, you know, and... That that that's the missing piece right there because it, it's not just a belief factor. It's what uh, what have you done to show that you know him, right? If if you truly know, if here's the thing, if you truly know Yahusha, whatever you call him, Yeshua, uh, Yahushua, Yahusha, Jesus, Jesus, go down the list. Ho, uh, was it uh, Jose? Is that a, a, a variation? Um, it's what John would say in First John, if you truly know him, then you will obey his commands. Why will you obey the commands? Because you know judgment is coming. If you mm -hmm. don't really believe in the judgment to come, you're not going to obey the commands. You're not going to really take it all that seriously. You clearly don't know him because that's what he's about. He's about justice. He's about, you know. And so this is what it comes down to. It's not just about, no, that's a an important belief issue. But, uh, man, it's like, it's. It, uh, there's going to be some, you guys know that I like to investigate and look at a lot of different texts. That's terror for some people because they're like, no, you're just, you're going down a slippery slope. You're looking at all this stuff and you're, you're going to be so wrong about, it's like, I just want the truth and I want to look at this stuff. And I, and I feel that there is grace because of, we've been lied to about so many things that, that yeah, uh, Yahuwah is going to give us the, the grace to pursue the truth. And be wrong on some things, but it all comes down to our heart issue. Do we care if do we care about the things that the father cares about? Which of course Yahusha cared about. You know, the 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 the, the widows, the fatherless, the, the 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 poor, the hungry, right? Do we care about those things? Do we have a heart for that? And that is what that is what ultimately is knowing Yahusha. It's not just getting all of our facts straight. Hopefully that makes sense to everybody. Um, and um, I just, I, I, I want to be sure as a group, because I, I'm, I'm in full agreement with uh, Jason on this Trinitarian issue, but that doesn't mean that Trinitarians are going to hell uh, because they have that wrong. It just, they, you know, it, you can have people, um, some of these people coming over to like to the tour movement and stuff. I mean, frankly, are, are some of the most obnoxious uh, self-righteous people that I've met and I think they're going to have another thing they have much more truth but I think they're going to have another thing coming to them when they uh, they realize that the, the very church they left had way more of a heart for Messiah so that's, that's just I'm, I'm rambling at this point but that's how I feel about it so um, you know yeah, 100%. It, it, at, at what point at what point do we reach a point where it's like we we know enough truth now that we're saved because that's a scary thought 
because I've att- I've attained a lot of truth over the last several years, but how much more do I have to go before I can say I'm saved now, right? Before I have that that gnostic that 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 hidden knowledge that I finally know that you know has I've attained the resurrection. So, anyways, yeah, just, anyone... and, and to go along with that, real quick, Noel, um, you know, there's scripture that says um, being a teacher, you're going to be held to a higher degree of accountability, and so even me trying to teach any of these things. I'm held to a higher degree, and I guarantee you I'm going to make some mistakes. Um, and so, you know, I pray to the Lord for grace that I try my best to research and, you know, I try to make as few as mistakes as I can. Yeah, I, when I, um, now I could be totally wrong about this, but the, the, the hip, hypocrisy issue that Yahushua was always going with, you know, the, the false shepherds, it wasn't, it wasn't because, you were reading from a book of the Bible that's, uh, guess what, guys? That's not really, the, you know, uh, Holy Spirit breathed. You know, you were mistaken on that, you know. Um, it's, it, it's what, if you are a teacher, uh, a leader, a shepherd of the people, are you a hypocrite? Are you, um, uh, you know, not uh, advocating or for yourself the very things that uh, we are supposed to have a heart for? And um, I, I think that that is what we are going to be uh, judged on um, for those kind of things. So um, anyways, yeah, because I, I, I think that there's when I get through when I look through the, the pages of Scripture from beginning to end, it's 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 not usually a criticism of, oh, well, they believe this wrong scientifically or blah, blah, blah. You know, I'm going to it's like, no, what was their what where was their heart? Were they, um, you know, desiring to serve me? And um, that's what we always need to remember in all of this. Does anyone have any other questions for Jason? Oh, yeah, it was uh, prolific. Go ahead. Yes, sir. OK, so uh, uh, we, I mean, this is kind of changing direction a little bit but it's one of the verses that came to mind you know throughout the presentation and i just wanted to get your thoughts on it um but by the way i i'm i'm somebody that really appreciates uh you know you putting all that together and you know because it's just one of those things you know coming coming to the truth on a lot of in a lot of different areas that you kind of when you're new to it you don't you're not, you're, you're kind of afraid to approach that kind of subject and just say, look, I know if I got, if I have Yeshua, I'm going to be okay. And that's where I stick to. And a lot of y'all have probably seen me say that because that's where I know my safety is, but I really um, enjoyed it tonight. And it's, you know, like when I'm talking with people about the Torah or about following the law, I always say, I mean, it, Yeshua says it plainly right there that you're supposed to. And then it's like, it just goes right over their head. And then tonight I kind of felt that uh, the Ruach was, saying that to me it's like i mean it says it right here this is how it is you just need to accept it um so that that was saying thank you for that but yeah you're welcome and i've enjoyed our conversations we've had on the server too so uh, you can go ahead but i you're welcome man but um on uh john 17 5 and uh, i i typed it in earlier i'll type it in again see if it'll pop up but it says, and now, Father, glorify thou me in thy own presence with the glory which I had with thee before the world was made. And I guess the, the, the thought is, if he's returning to that glory, um, is that 
is he kind of, I don't even know how to ask the question, but is he fulfilling a dual purpose by saying when he comes back for the millennial reign, it's not like he left that glory again, right? That glory would have come with him. The yeah, reign I guess during the thousand um, reign, because when he goes back to, I'm misinterpreting that verse. Yeah, in and and I guess when you uh, incorporate the millennial reign, that that is a whole other set of of things. But I guess you know I just read that verse um, in a simplistic way. You know that. Um, in the beginning, you know, it was Yahweh, Ruach HaKodesh, um, and Yeshua. And, you know, a lot of times, a lot of people have looked into in Genesis, um, it says, let us make a man in our own image. And it was actually the the heavenly family that was saying that, I believe. And they were in, obviously, uh, you know, a glorious state uh, in heaven. And, you know, for Yeshua to go from being in such a glorious state in heaven, um, uh, third in authority, in my opinion, um, uh, to go as a, to become a man on the earth and to die on the cross, um, a horrible death. Um, it was an awesome thing for him to say, Father, will you glorify me again while I go back to the state that I was in? in heaven with you at the beginning um I, I went through a treacherous time in the flesh um so that's how i read that verse if that makes sense yeah and that uh, the way you just described it helped help me understand the millennial reign part of it too it's like uh, when you read revelation i mean it, it it describes how he looks and uh you know legs of bronze and as a fire you know so uh i would imagine that when he came back that that that's the glory would have came with him you know, and he still would have had access to go to and from as opposed to everybody else. So yeah. I know that's kind of kind of deep for for where we were, but that came to mind and I was just interested to see how you uh, felt about that. Yeah, for sure. Um, I'll keep uh, talking as long as my uh, earbuds work, but just so you guys know, the battery's getting a little low um, and I can uh, log in on my phone too uh, if I need to in a minute here. Well, uh, thanks again. I'm going to go ahead and mute, listen for a little bit. But yeah, it was good talking to you. I enjoyed our conversations on Discord too. So, Me too. Uh, hopefully many more in the future. Yeah. I don't know if this was mentioned before, uh, but if it wasn't, uh, could you uh, give us uh, information where we could find your books? Uh, yeah. Um, if you go on to Amazon um, and type in Matthew H. Um, Nofziger, N-O-F-Z-I-G-E-R, um, it's actually at the bottom of this article. If you go to the very last uh, line of this article, um, I, when I started writing in, I think, 2012, um, I did it under a pen name. Uh, I prayed about it, and I everyone that I was around knew uh, I didn't have any support in uh, the Lord. I felt like the Lord said it was okay to write under a pen name so I could write um, without any, no holds barred basically. And, um, and so I, I've continued doing that uh, even though uh, I don't, I'm not fearful anymore because I, I uh, that's just, uh, I've changed, I guess. But, um, but yeah, and um, I can, 
uh, I can put a link in here too. I, I don't, is that okay with you, Noel? I, however you want to do that. If uh... Yes, please do put a link in. That's um, that absolutely. I personally, <laughs> I, I kick myself every day for it's too late now. I'm out there out in the open. I wish I went out with a fake name uh, from the very beginning. Uh, it would have spared me from a lot of hardships with uh, family and other things, but uh, it is what it is. Yeah, yes. it, um, it was a decision it... I had prayed about um, in 2012, and uh, but yeah, it uh, you definitely um, catch a lot of uh, flack from people for uh, teachings like this here. I have something to. Um add on that i'd like to really say thank you jason that i really sense a real humbleness from you and appreciate your heart in in your spirit in your teaching and um it's probably one of the best teachings that i've been a part of in the in a really long time and i just want to thank, thank you for you. your excellent work and uh, that you see you've put a lot into it and i really i really loved it enjoyed it tonight it actually really blew my mind uh tonight because i've always pondered on to the master's prayer about, you know, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And, you know, when you had said earlier about Yahusha being placed into the waters of the womb, like, wow, that really blew my mind because I've always seen um, it probably in the last, you know, long time that that we are on earth as it is in heaven, that it is a family and that we have a family that we're emulating what it is in the heavens with um, the father, the Ruach and the son, and this is what we do on earth. And I think this is why the family is under such assault you know, on the earth. But I, yeah, that kind of blew my mind. I never really seen it kind of put into, a, um, an image that way, but yeah, really thank you for that. I did have a couple things that I wrote, took a couple notes on and, um, your, uh, teaching when it talked about Hebrews 10 and, um, you had, had said about uh, in the NSAB and the Septuagint about my righteousness, one shall live by faith. And in the Maseratic, it says the righteous will live by faith. It kind of reminded me of is that that we walking are living by faith and, you know, in our Messiah and that we walk living according to his example. And I, I felt like, you know, with that being taken out, when when I looked at that re, as you were le reading along tonight, I was like, wow, that just really made a lot of sense to me because we are walking um, and living according to his example that we are living by his faith. So that was one thing. And then the other one that I had was in Isaiah 52 and in Romans 2 that you had said, I thought this was really interesting um, as you were talking about my name is continually blaspheming all day long. And in the Romans 2, it says, on account of you, my name is continually blaspheming among the Gentiles. And um, I, so as you were speaking, I looked that uh, word up in Strong's, and it's the 5006, and it's um, Na'at. And um, it said in, uh, it said in there um, that uh, it's speaking of the sacred name. And about being blasphemed, and um, it it says that in like in the oh shoot sorry just lost me thing it's, oh to spurn and to treat with contempt or to reject or despise. So I thought that was really interesting that those were taken out about continuously blaspheming his name 
because you know with Judaism obviously we know never says his name it's like Hashem or Adonai and the Christians don't say his name they call him Lord and I thought that was really interesting that in the Strong's that it even uses that word to reject or despise the name so I thought that was uh, really interesting and then lastly my other part was um, I did a big study on some of the church fathers years ago on um, uh, Justin the Mar Justin Martyr and Irenarius and some things that I found um, in Irenarius because his books was like in 130 AD and uh, the demonstration of the Apollos, uh, apostolic preaching and then Justin the Martyr under the dialogue with the Trifos. Mm -hmm. there there's a few things of the of those um, writings that they had that weren't even in the Septuagint and I thought it was really interesting that some of those things were even taken out like in Isaiah 53 1 obviously that's the one that Judaism uses a huge one to kind of hide Yahusha in that and um and I found those teachings in both their books because if you look at Iron Arius in Justin Martyr for that one particular example there's plenty in the uh Torah or I mean the in the um, Tanakh but in Isaiah 51 53.1 particularly it really shows you how they really hid Yahusha in that because to me, I just don't think that you can even refute, like obviously some of the, all, all the scriptures that you gave clearly shows that they were really trying to hide him. But even some of these other books of the early church fathers really was showing that they were writing and that they were actually saying that they were quoting and attributing some of these writings to Isaiah that they had in their books, but you still didn't find in the Septuagint or the Masoretic. And then uh, just lastly, and now, uh, real quick, um, yeah. did you say Isaiah 53.1 um, is missing today? Is that what you said? Um, like in the Septuagint, like, so if you look in, um, just because I did like a comparison in my own notes um, that I had in my own study. And if you look at Irenaeus and Justin Martyr, they're very similar. And so if you look at Isaiah 53.1 in Justin Martyr, Iron Air basically says the same thing, but it says, behold, my, sp my servant shall deal prudently and he shall be exalted and be greatly glorified as many astonished at thee. So thy form and thy glory shall be marred more than men. So shall many nations be astonished at him and the king shall shut their mouths. For that which had not been told them concerning him shall they see, and that which they had not heard shall they consider. Lord, who hath believed our report, and to whom in the arms of the Lord revealed? So if you look at Isaiah 53 in the Septuagint 1, it just has that last part. Lord, who hath believeth our report, and to whom in the arms of the Lord revealed? Oh, okay. Would you yeah, so would really... you post that on this uh, on this page? Um, yeah, of course. Uh, that's a new one to me. That's pretty cool. Um, yeah, and there's a few like in Jeremiah that Irenaeus and Justin Martyr and that um, speak of in First Peter. I'll post a few of the ones that I have found um, that weren't in yeah, the Yeah, sure, that'd be awesome. And uh, just for my own studies and that. And I mean, not to kind of dog on anybody because I mean even with with my husband and I over the years like our last child I mean because we believed in the trinity you know in the very beginning and I, I think everybody did because that's what you're kind of indoctrinated in the church 
And so we named our last child Trinity, which is kind of embarrassing today, but, um, you know, but it's like we believed in the Trinity and we're thinking because she was our third child and we're like, yeah, well, we're going to name her Trinity because she's three and three and one. And, and, um, and then, you know, you fast forward all these years and then you kind of come out of all of that and realize that the Trinity is just not a thing. And then, so now the, the joke in our family is that she says, uh, she's 24 now. And then she'll, she says, oh, when people say, well, where did your parents get your name from? And she'll say, well, like there really was involved in the new world order and they got my name and <laughs> from the matrix. <laughs> so, well, and I don't know I mean, if this will, if this will comfort you at all in that, but, um, a lot of people ask me, how do I uh, describe uh, what they believe? Uh, I don't even want to use the term Trinity because I don't believe in the term, but um, the way I like to say it is uh, the Father, the Spirit, and the Son are one in unity. Um, so I don't know if you take any comfort in that as far as there is still an element of truth there. I don't you know, like to use the, uh, the first term. And going back to what you're saying as far as the older texts, um, that is a, a really cool point. Um, as far as the, the old writers, even quote things a little differently than the Septuagint. Um, so we're going back to the oldest text we have available. Um, Origen, um, he was putting what he did put together. It's called the Hexapla. It was a, um, a compilation of, I think, four to six versions of the Septuagint and a few versions of the Hebrew Bible, and he was putting them um, all in one huge volume so that everyone could compare uh, all these different versions of the Septuagint along with the different versions of the, the Hebrew. Unfortunately, it's been completely destroyed. Um, but yeah, it's, it's fascinating to read some of the old writers because they quoted it in the way that it was before uh, the Masoretes or the Trinitarians got their hands on them. Yeah, that's what I really loved about reading the early church fathers, because I was really fascinated by them. And uh, because they were, you know, writing like I know Irenaeus, uh, you know, supposedly was 130 AD. And when you're reading their text, it's like, wow, this isn't even in like they cut out so much of the information. And they mm -hmm. literally say in their text I that they were attributing to Jeremiah and to Isaiah and to all these other things. And. Um, and I think that some of the new texts that we have in the New Testament, like in First Peter, is one that came to my mind that First Peter was attributing to uh, Irenaeus when he was saying, um, um, for this cause was the gospel preached also to them that are dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but living uh, live according to the God to God in the spirit that's first Peter 4 6 and that's not even found in the Septuagint either but you will find it in Irenaeus and Justin Martyr and it's quotes um and the Lord the Holy One of Israel remembered his dead which aforetime fell asleep in the dust of the earth and he went down unto them to bring the tidings of his salvation to deliver them so I thought that was really interesting. So we can definitely see quotes from the apostles, from the disciples, I meant to, um, that they were obviously quoting stuff from there and to back it up from the early church fathers, which I thought was really great. But well done. I really, really appreciated um, this evening and I really appreciated your 
um, energy and, and your humbleness and all of this. Thank you. Uh, you're welcome. It, it was fun. I, I enjoyed it. And, you know, don't, uh, uh, hit yourself too hard for naming your third child Trinity. Uh, my name is Noel and, uh, that means Christmas in French. So I am named after a <laughs> pagan holiday of the winter solstice, which celebrates Nimrod's birthday. And uh, it is what it is. And um, I, you know, I don't, I don't, um, I've said this before that the reason what happens a lot of times when people come to the Hebrew roots or Torah or whatever, they start changing their names. And um, I, I haven't done that because I feel that like our, our birth given name, there's something prophetic about it a lot of times. And, um, you know, here I am trying to tear down people's idols and that kind of stuff. I'm just saying, you know, don't hit, you know, um, it's like, I, <laughs> I'm, my name is Christmas. Anyways, with that, uh, thank you, uh, Jason. I'm going to officially, I think, close this now. And, well, um, just interject real quick. No, yeah. um, uh, sorry, I haven't been typing. Um, I'm kind of a one-track uh, mind person, but I will try to respond to a lot of the uh, questions uh, in the next, you know, day or two here. So sorry. As Nikki says, that her name is from Saint Nick. That's interesting. I didn't think <laughs> about that. All right. So, um, anyways, yeah, we're gonna officially close this now. Um, we've been going four and a half hours. I think it is. Uh, it's no, just three and a half. Just three and a half. That's not bad. Almost just under four hours. But uh, it was a great discussion. And you guys are all welcome to, uh, you know, talk into the night if you would like, as you guys sometimes do. Um, I always find out the people that were actually really sleeping because I'll log in at like six in the morning and like two or three accounts are still sitting there. I'm like, you were sleeping, weren't you? And um, <laughs> but um, <laughs> anyways, uh, good night, guys. It was great to see you guys all here and to hear from you guys. Uh, so Shabbat Shalom and again uh, you as well Jason Shabbat Shalom Music